in three, two, one, and we're live. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. Now don't call me sir. What's up, everybody? It's Friday night, and you know what that means. It's the dad's a drink. We've crawled up in your ear hole, scribbled around your brain, and we have an excellent show for you tonight. We are so honored to have this guest. He spent his entire life changing people's mind states and from a very basic core level. He is a legend in the music industry. He's an author. He's a lecturer. He's an actor. He's an activist. And we are so happy to have him on the show tonight. We're going to have Daryl Davis. And if you wonder what he's been doing his whole life, we'll take a look at this quick video and it'll let you know. ever given in this country were the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln and the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King. Excuse me a minute. This is where he stood and gave that famous speech. All you have is an etching in the concrete. There's no plaque. There's no sign. Millions of people trample all over that, not even realizing how important that spot is. He says, I have a dream. I call this stepping on the dream. I'm Daryl Davis. I'm a musician, actor, author, and a lecturer. People always say to me, Daryl, how can you have this stuff? Why don't you burn it? As shameful as it is, you don't burn our history, regardless of the good, the bad, the ugly. And the Ku Klux Klan is as American as baseball, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Hey, Frank, how you doing, man? Hey, Gary. Nice to meet you. My pleasure. Here's my great Titan robe. Let me put it on. Yeah. We've got members as young as 18, and we also have junior clan members. We would fight to the last bullet for our people. Okay, so what can we all do together as a nation? Help Get save the white race. Help save the white race. Goodness gracious, great ball of fire. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? Look at me and tell me to my face why you would lynch me. This country has been through a lot. It still has a long ways to go. Uh, an awful long way, as news will tell you. I'm mad. We should all be mad. We have a society that has determined that we should fear the black man. Give that person a platform. Allow them to air their views, and people will reciprocate. I never set out to convert anybody. In my quest, some of them ended up converting themselves. Hey, this is somebody I can relate to.
please, everybody, give a very warm welcome to Mr. Daryl Davis. Hello, sir. How are you? How are you all doing? Thank you for having me. We are excellent. Thank you so much. So I guess right off the bat, the first question in my mind, and I think Jeff's mind, we've talked about it, is why? Well, why? Because our country, our society here in this country, United States, can only become one of two things. It can become, number one, that which we sit back and let it become, or it can become, number two, that which we stand up and make it become. So we each, as an American, have to ask ourselves, do I want to sit back and see what my country becomes, or do I want to stand up and make it become what I want to see? And I've chosen the latter. And this goes back all the way from you being 10 years old. And if we could start at your childhood and move through uh, you becoming the voice that you become in the United States, we would love to hear about that more. Sure. Well, it goes back just a little bit further than uh, than 10, uh, because when I was a, you know younger, in, uh, my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up as an American embassy brat living all, all over the world. I lived in Africa. I lived in Europe. I visited many other countries starting at the age of three. And when you combine my travels as a kid well, with, my, with my folks and combine them to my travels now as an adult, as a professional musician playing around the world, I've been in a total of 57 different countries on six continents. So I've literally been exposed to a multitude of uh, ethnicities, cultures, religions, people, you name it. And um, one of the times when I came back from overseas, and, uh, and overseas I was in class in the 1960s with uh, kids from Germany, Nigeria, Italy, France, Sweden, Japan. You know, anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their kids went to the same school. So literally my classroom looked like a little a United Nations of little kids. And uh, when I would come back home here after my dad's assignment every two years, I would be in either all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the uh, still segregated or the newly integrated. And we did not have the amount of diversity in my classroom back here that I had overseas. So that, that scenario was yet to come here to this country. So when I was living overseas, literally, I was living about 10 years into the future. Hmm. And um, so one time we came back, I was age 10. And I was one of two black children in the entire school, myself in fourth grade and a little, and a, a little girl in uh, second grade. So the only time that I ever saw her was like at recess or lunchtime. So consequently, all of my friends were white, you know, fourth and fifth graders. And many of my guy friends were members of the Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join. Again, this was 1968. And this was in a place called Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of uh, Boston. And we had a, a parade, a march from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts, to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere, the Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Brownies, 4-H Club, and whatever else. And I was only black participant. And everybody was cheering us and yelling the British are coming and all that kind of thing as we marched down the streets. And we got to some point where a group of maybe four or five people uh, began throwing bottles and soda pop cans and uh, rocks at me off to my right. And I remember it being a couple of kids, <clears throat> maybe a year or two younger, I mean, older than me, and a couple of adults. And because I'd never had anything like this ever happen to me, my first thought was, oh, you know, those people over there, 
you know, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. Uh, I didn't realize I was the only scout being targeted until all of my uh, scout leaders came running over. And you know, these were all white people and uh, huddled over me with their bodies and protected me and escorted me out of the danger. And I kept asking them, well, why are they hitting me? I didn't do anything. And all they kept doing was, you know, shushing me and rushing me along. And so they never answered my question. And when I got home, my mom and dad, who were not in attendance of the parade, uh, were asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up as they're putting Band-Aids and stuff on me? And I told them exactly what happened. I didn't fall down. I told them what happened. And for the first time in my life, I, uh, they sat me down and they explained to me what racism was. And believe it or not, at the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no reason to. You know, I, I was in school with people from all over the world and nobody treated me any different than they would treat anybody else. You know, we all got along, uh, we played together, worked together, even if we didn't speak the same language. We had, you know, slumber parties, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I had never experienced racism. Well, when they told me this, I did not believe my parents for the first time in my life. I'm an only child. And so, you know, they had never lied to me before. But on this occasion, my 10-year-old brain could not process the mm -hmm. notion that someone who had never seen me, who knew nothing <clears throat> about me, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It just made no sense, given the fact that I'd had tons of experiences with white people who did not behave like the people who looked just like them on the sidewalk. So I had no reason to believe my parents, and I didn't. Well, about a month and a half, two months later, that same year, 1968, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And every major city in this country, nearby Boston, my hometown, Chicago, right here where I am now, Washington, DC, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, Nashville, all burned to the ground in the name of this new word that I had learned recently called racism. So now I knew that this thing did exist but I did not know why it existed. Why do people hate somebody because of the color of their skin? So I formed a question in my mind uh, at that age, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? Mm -hmm. And now for the next 52 years, because I'm 62 years old now, I've been looking for the answer to that question. And yeah, so, uh, go ahead, DJ. And so have you ever, have you ever come to an answer? Uh, yes, I've come to two answers. And it, now, how, how did I arrive at those answers? Well, uh, starting as a teenager, I began buying every book I could find on black supremacy, white supremacy, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, you know, anti-Semitism, anything. I want to learn all about it because I knew... He froze up. answer. And so I majored in, you know, after high school, graduated, I went to college, got my degree in music. And um, I, you know, I graduated from college and began playing music professionally. And country music had made a resurgence. There'd been a movie out called Urban Cowboy, uh, which was filmed down there in Texas, right? At Gillies or something, right? Mm -hmm. Mechanical Bull and all the line dancing. And so all the uh, clubs and bars, you know, switched their format from top 40 to country. And so if you want to work full time in music, you know, you played country and I like country music. Uh, it was very easy to play. Country music is no different than the blues. 
it's the same three chords. And mm-hmm. in my opinion, Hank Williams Sr., the father of country music, was a blues singer because he sang from the soul. He sang from the heart, from the gut. So anyway. He just had a little bit more twang, right? Exactly. That's it. You know, you know, man separated us, but the music is the same. So anyway, um, I joined this country band, and the, the band had been around for a while. And it was an all-white band, and usually they played at these, you know, predominantly white places. Well, we played at this one place called the Silver Dollar Lounge in a city called Frederick, Maryland. And the Silver Dollar Lounge was known to be an all-white bar. And by all-white, I do not mean that blacks could not go in. Uh, I mean that blacks did not go in, and that was by their own choice. And it was a good choice because when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and uh, alcohol is being served, it, it doesn't make for a good conversation, right. right? So um, the band had played there before, but I'd never been there before. So here I am in this place. And we, you know, we did a set of music and then took a break. And I was walking over to the band table when this uh, white gentleman came up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder. I turned around to see who was touching me. And he says, hey, you know, I like your all's music. I said, thank you. And I shook his hand. And he pointed at the bandstand and said, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you all before. Where'd you come from? Or I've never seen you before. Where'd you come from? And I explained, you know, I just joined the band. And so he says, man, I sure like your, you know, your piano playing. This is the first time I've ever seen a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And (laughs) I I wasn't offended, but I I was rather surprised because this guy had to be maybe 15 or so years older than me. And he didn't know the black origin of uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's, you know, style of piano playing. So I said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play? And he says, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, he learned that style from black blues and boogie woogie piano players. That's where that rock, rock and roll rockabilly uh, style came from. Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry Lee invented that. I ain't never seen no black man except for you play like that. So I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, you know, the dude never saw Little Richard or Fat Domino or something. And I, I told the guy, I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy didn't buy that either, but he was fascinated enough with me that he wanted to buy me a drink and take me back to his table. So I go back there. I ordered a cranberry juice. He pays the waitress. He takes his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Now I'm totally, you know, mystified. Like, you know, what's going mm-hmm. on? Because at that point in time in my life, I had sat down with thousands, I mean, literally thousands of white people over the years and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. And this guy had never done that. I, I just couldn't imagine. So um, I asked him why. And at first he didn't he didn't say anything. He stared at the tabletop. And I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him, said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I said, well, tell me. And then he looked back at me just as plain as day. And he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing because now <laughs> I did not believe him. Now, you keep in mind, I'd re- I read, I own and have read all these books on the Klan. And none of these books talked about how a Klansman would come up and embrace a black guy and want right. to buy him a drink. It doesn't work that way. So uh, I'm laughing because, you know, the guy's joking with me. And he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and produces his membership card and hands it to me. I look at this thing and I, I recognize the Klan insignia which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. And I stopped laughing because this thing was for real. So I gave it back to him. And we talked about the Klan and some other things. Um, But he gave me his phone number 
and he wanted me to call him whenever I was to return to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, to see this uh, black guy play piano like Jerry Lee. So you know, I'm not sure he called me a black guy to his friends, but that's what he wanted <laughs> to do. So I'd call him every six weeks and say, hey, man, you know, we're going to be down at the uh, Silver Dollar this week and come on out. He'd come both nights, Friday and Saturday, and he'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen, and they'd come and they'd gather around the bandstand and watch me play or get out on the dance floor and dance to our music. You know, they came in, you know, regular street clothes. You know, they didn't come in, you know, robes and hoods. And um, on the break, I would, you know, make my way over to his table, say hello. Uh, some of them were interested in meeting me, and, and they would hang there, and we'd sit down and talk. Uh, others would see me coming and get up and scurry across the floor over to some other part of the room. So you know, it was like, you know, look but do not touch kind of thing, you know, which was fine. And uh, at the end of that year, I quit that band, and I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and you know whatever else, whatever else was going on. And it dawned on me a while later, Daryl, you know, the answer to that question that's been plaguing you since age 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me, fell right into your lap. And, you know, you didn't even realize it. Get a hold mm -hmm. of that Klansman, because who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization with over a hundred year history of practicing hating people who does not who do not look like them and who do not believe as they believe. Get a hold of that guy and get him to fix you up with the uh, state leader and the national leader and some other uh, members and start interviewing them and write a book because there had been no books written by a black author on the Klan from uh, from face-to-face -face interviews with them. Yeah. There had only been two books written on the Klan by black authors. and They weren't really on the Klan, but they dealt with the Klan and each author detailed how he escaped a lynching, one in the 1930s and one in the 1940s. Other than that, all the books were written by white authors. So my book would become the first book written by a black author. So that's where that whole thing started. Wow, that's 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 fascinating. And um, so so you've obviously, and we'll get to some of this, you've had some great interactions with Klansmen over the years. You've I mean, you call some of them your friends um, and you talk about um, the importance of dialogue. And um, can you kind of expand on why it's important to have these open discussions as, as, as a, you know, nowadays it seems as though people say a bunch of hateful things and, and discussion is closed and you never reconvene. You get blocked on Facebook and social media is an awful platform. But can you explain why it's important to keep the dialogue open when you have differences? Absolutely. You know, listen. A missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. So it's always important to have dialogue. And, and you have to know how to respond in dialogue. One of the two, two things you have to do. Number one, you have to learn as much as you can about the position of your adversary, your opponent, uh, whether, it's, whether it's a topic of race or any other hot topic. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be race. It could be abortion. It could be global warming, the war in the Middle East, nuclear weapons, the current presidency. Uh, you know, whatever the hot topic is, you're on one side, the other person's on the other side. Learn as much as you can about their position. Put yourself in their shoes, all right? Because even though they may not like you, when they see that you have done your homework, and you and you understand or have an understanding 
of their position, they will respect you. And that's very important. So listen, when you know all the traveling I've done, no matter how far I've gone from this country to the other side of the earth, and no matter how different people may be that I've encountered or cultures that I have encountered, at the end of the day, I have concluded one thing. We all are human beings and we all want the same basic four things. We wanna be loved, we wanna be respected, we wanna be heard, and we want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. So as long as we understand those things, that is a tool which we can use to navigate through society and the obstacles you know, that face us, like opposition. Number mm -hmm. two, <clears throat> know who you are. Know exactly who you are you know, ha have your self-esteem in check. I don't. I don't mean you know. Don't be closed-minded. Don't be a, a, an egotist. But know who you are. Know your position. Because if you don't know who you are, you have no business going in the room with somebody who is just the opposite. Because then they will tell you who you are. And depending upon where, where your self-esteem is, you might believe them when you leave there. So, uh, you know, I would I would meet with these people, and I would ask these questions. You know, how can you hate me? You know, when you don't even know me. And some of the answers I would get would be like, well, Mr. Davis, you know, uh, black people are, are prone to crime. They're criminals. Uh, all you have to do is look at the prison system. There are more blacks in prison than there are white people. Uh, so, you know, that's a half truth. Yes, he's right. There are more blacks in prison than there are white people. But I say it's a half truth because he's not considering the inequity of the uh, judicial system or the fact that there are plenty of whites and blacks in prison who are poor, who cannot afford legal representation. And, right. and they'll take a plea deal to something you know they didn't even do. And, and there they are, stuck there. Um, so that then I'm told that uh, Blacks are inherently lazy, that we prefer to scam the government welfare system. We don't want to get a job. We want the free handouts, et cetera. And then I'm told that Black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the smaller the brain, the less room for intelligence. The larger the brain, the more room for IQ. And so uh, he tells me that, you know, that is evidenced by the fact that that uh, black students consistently score lower on the uh, high school SATs than, uh, than white students. Again, this is a half truth. He's right about that. But he's not considering the fact that in the inner city, the, the quality of education is not as good. All right. If you check the SAT scores of, of uh, black kids, who went to school in the suburbs and things like that, they score as well as, as any white kid, sometimes even better. Uh, and so now, rather than me push back against this while he's talking, I don't, all right? Not because I'm, I'm kissing his behind, but because I'm giving him a platform. I'm allowing him to be heard. Remember what I said, everybody wants to be heard. So my, my idea is to plant a seed now, when he first comes in the room and sees me, his wall goes up because I'm something right. he does not like. All right, just because of the color of my skin, he has all these preconceived notions about me. So that wall is up, he's ready to attack. All right, and I know that. So it's no point planting a seed when the wall is up. It's just gonna hit the wall and bounce right back. So what I do is I allow him to go ahead and spew all the stuff that he wants to spew. You know, I don't interrupt him. I don't push back, et cetera. And may I just add, Daryl, that that has to be incredibly hard for you to listen. I mean, for someone to say, oh, a 
a black person's brain isn't large. You know this is total horse crap, but you have to endure this ignorance and stupidity because you're at least allowing them the platform to get their message across. No matter how hard it is for you, you have to resist that to listen to what he has to say. Well, there are two ways to look at it. No pain, no gain. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, like I said, before going in that room, you have to know who you are. Absolutely. Right? So that way I can keep myself in check because, check it out, um, it's what he's saying, you know, as you pointed out, is what he's saying offensive? It is absolutely offensive. But am I offended by it? Absolutely not. And why am I not offended by what he's saying? Because what he is saying is not true. Why should I be offended by an untruth? I know who I am. This man just met me five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago. All he sees is the color of my skin, and he's going to make these assertions about me. Why should I believe them? I know they're not true. If my mother or father were to tell me that I'm dumb and that I'm prone to crime and I'm lazy, then I might take heed to that because, you know, they know me. You know, they brought me into this world. They raised me. But somebody who just met me? No, I'm not going to believe that. So I'm not going to get offended by it and get all emotional and push back. Let him get it out. All right. So what happens is when I do that, he, he's not used to that. That throws him off his game. And mm -hmm. his wall is coming down. Okay. His wall is coming down. So now when he gets done saying all the stuff that he's going to say, he feels compelled to reciprocate to give me a platform to allow me to speak because I gave him that, that respect. So now when it's my turn to address him, I don't attack him. I don't go on the offense because that will cause the wall to go back up. Instead of going on the offense, I simply defend myself by saying, hey, listen, you know, um, I don't have a criminal record. Nobody in my family has a criminal record. I have never been on welfare. Nobody in my family has ever been on welfare. I don't know the size of my brain. I never measured it, but I'm sure it's the same size <laughs> as anybody else's. And furthermore, uh, my SAT scores enabled me to get into college, and I graduated with a bachelor's degree. My parents have master's degrees. My father was working on his PhD before he passed away. So now I'm saying all this knowing that this guy just barely made it out of high school. Like I said, <laughs> you're right. So rather than throw that in his face to attack him, no, I, I'm, I'm going to defend myself. All right. So in that in that way, I'm already planting that seed on the other side of his wall because the wall is down now. I can cross over into his yard and plant that seed. And every time I come back, I'm going to water it. And then here's what's very important. Here's exactly what happens. And I know this to be a fact because many of them have told me that after they've given up that ideology and given me their robes and hoods and whatever else. All right. Here's what happens. They go home and because, you know, I, I could go on the attack after it's my turn to talk and say, no, you're the criminal. You're the one who's burning crosses in people's yards. You're the one dragging black men behind pickup trucks and hanging them from trees and so forth and so on. That's going to cause that wall to go right back up. But mm -hmm. instead of attacking them, I defend on my side. So they go home and they think, you know, I just had a conversation with a black guy for three hours. It, it, that, that doesn't happen. Because usually when they have those kind of conversations within 45 seconds, you know, there's contention. Right. The whole thing shuts down. Right. So and then and then he thinks, you know, what he said about such and such makes sense. But but he's black. But but it was true. But but he's black. So they're having this cognitive dissonance. 
They know what I'm saying is true. They either research it or come to that conclusion, but they don't want to believe the truth because it came from a black source, but they know it's true. So that becomes a dilemma with them. And then they have to decide, do I disregard the fact that he's black and believe it because it's true and change my direction? Or do I consider that, that he's black and continue living a lie that I know is a lie? That becomes their dilemma. So I don't like to say that I converted anybody. You know, in the media, you see my name, it says black musician converts, you know, 200 Klansmen or whatever. No, I didn't even convert one, but I am the impetus for over 200 for them to, to be converted. They converted themselves. I simply planted the seed and gave them reason to think. I don't like telling people what to think. I, I prefer to tell them how to think. So let me ask you a question, Daryl. You mentioned when you when you met the first, uh, I guess your first KKK member in the club when you were playing. He brings you over, buys you a drink, and he says that. And then he says, he gives you his phone number, and he says, whenever you're back in town or whenever you're playing here, call me mm -hmm. because I want to bring along my other clansmen, clanswomen, whoever he's going to bring. Right. At any point, because you said a couple things that you do, you have to know who you are. You have to, there's a couple ground rules that you have to have going in. Is there ever fear that comes into it though? When you hear a man say, I'm going to bring some more clan men and clan women. Does fear ever enter it where you go, Hmm, maybe this wasn't the best idea or, uh, where you fear that something may go awry in that situation. No, not not so much, um, because he was so friendly, you know. Uh, in in okay. if I if I'd been home and thought about it, maybe because I, I have had situations, you know, where where you know fear did enter the game, and there I've had situations where I've had to become violent and and hurt people, put them in the hospital, put them in jail because they attacked me, you know. And fortunately, those have been few and far between times, um, but you know. You have to have that in the back of your mind. That is a possibility. And the first guy that I interviewed was this guy's boss, um, a grand dragon. Let, let me give you the hierarchy of the clan. Um, <clears throat> today, there is no such thing as the Ku Klux Klan. There used to be the Ku Klux Klan, okay. and then there were chapters of the Ku Klux Klan spread out around the country. But since that time, the Klan has, has uh, imploded and, and exploded into splinter groups. So there's no more clan central. You have all these different clan groups uh, that all use the same name. They use the same colors on their robes. They basically have the same bylaws. They all use the same passwords and the same um, uh, secret handshake, etc. But they are separate autonomous groups. In fact, they're even rivals with each other, even though they have the same name. You might have the Dixie Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the Confederate Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. These are all separate clan groups and they are rivals with each other. Um, so now if you have a clan group, let's say in Texas, and you establish another chapter of your particular clan group in another state, say New Mexico or Arizona or whatever, or multiple states, you may then consider yourself to be a national clan group. And therefore you must uh, have a national leader who oversees all the states in which you have a faction of your group. So that national leader, which we would call the president, they call that person the imperial wizard. Anybody that is prefixed with the term imperial 
means that individual is on the national level, as a national officer, wizard being the highest office, and imperial caliph would be like a vice president. And then you have secretaries and treasurers down the line. The next level down would be a state leader. Uh, each state in which you have a chapter has a leader. Uh, we would call, our, in our terminology, we would call our state leader the governor. They call that individual the grand dragon. Anybody on the grand level is on the state level, a dragon being the highest. A grand caliph would be like a uh, lieutenant governor. Uh, then again, secretary and treasurer is all prefixed with the word grand. And then the next level down is the county level, a county leader, uh, which we would call a county manager, a county executive. That individual is known as the great titan. Anybody prefixed with the word great, they're on the county level. Below the county, within the county, you have districts, which they call claverns. And a clavern leader, we would call a councilman, an alderman, a mayor. They call that individual the exalted cyclops. And below the exalted cyclops are just plain, plain, you know, white robe, uh, you know, clansmen and clanswomen. So um, the uh, <clears throat> the grand dragon, uh, the first one that I interviewed, you know, I, I was told not to fool with him. You know that he would kill me. And I'm like, well, that's the whole reason why I, I need to see him because I want to know why would he kill me? I mean, he doesn't know anything about me. And this is the guy that I met in the bar uh, who fixed me up with this guy. But he was okay. very reluctant, reluctant to do so because he was fearful for his his uh, safety as well as mine. If you if you were to connect a black guy to his uh, grand dragon, even though by the time I caught up with this guy, uh, he had uh, left the clan, and uh, actually he he gotten kicked out. But uh, anyway, he um, he gave me uh, the uh, grand dragon's phone number and address, and um, and warned me, Daryl, do not go to his house. Don't fool with him. He'll kill you. And he he uh, he only gave me the information on the condition that I not tell this Grand Dragon where I got his information. And the Grand Dragon's name was Roger Kelly. So I said, okay, fine. So I had my secretary uh, contact uh, Mr. Kelly, and my secretary was white. And I only mentioned that because it plays into the story, not that I care. But I did not want to call him because I figured, you know, he might detect in my voice that I'm black and say, I'm not talking to you. Click. And the whole project would have ended before it ever got started. But I knew if uh, Mary called him, he would know that she was white. And he would not automatically assume that this white woman was working for a black man, especially a black man who's writing a book on the Klan, because you know mm -hmm. it didn't exist. So uh, I had her call him, and I told her specifically, do not tell Mr. Kelly that I'm black unless he asks. You know, If he asks, don't lie to him, but don't give him reason to ask. So she said, OK. So she called him and uh, he didn't ask and he agreed to do the interview. So skipping ahead, we had it set up uh, for a motel and uh, Mary and I at 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon and Mary and I got there super early and I gave her some money and sent her down the hall to get some soda pop out of the uh, machine and put it in the ice bucket, fill it with ice, get it all cold because, you know, I wanted to be hospitable when this man arrived. I had no idea what he was going to do. Would he look at me and say, I'm not talking to you and walk away? Or would he attack me? Or would he come in my room and, and do this, inter this interview as he agreed to over the phone? Uh, in any event, I wanted to be hospitable and offer him a cold beverage. So she got all that taken care of. And um, at 5.15, he arrived. Now, the room, you cannot see who's in it from, from, the, uh, from the doorway in the hall. You have to come in the room, turn the corner, and then you see who's in the room. 
So I'd already taken the lamp table and set it in the most obscure corner of the room, took the lamp off, put a chair on one side for Mr. Kelly, a chair on this side for me. And beside my my chair, I had a black uh, canvas bag in which I had a cassette recorder, which I put in the center of the table, all in hopes that if he did come in the room, that he would allow me to record the interview. And I had some blank cassettes in the bag. And I had a copy of the Bible because the uh, the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization. And they mm -hmm. claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, I've <laughs> read the Bible, and I've never seen that in there. Right, I, I haven't either. I wanted to be able to pull up my Bible and say, here, Mr. Kelly, please show me chapter and verse where it says blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared. Well, right on time, I'm right, right down to the minute, 515, there's a knocking on the door, and I'm seated at the table where you can't see me until you come in. Mary hops up, runs around the corner, opens the door. In walks what is known as the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk in Klan terminology means bodyguard or security. Grand, okay. Yeah, Grand, of course, means state. So a Grand Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Grand Dragon, like an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. Well, anyway, this uh, Grand Nighthawk walks in, and he's wearing military camouflage, and he had a clan patch on his chest, that red circle with the white cross and blood drop on one side, the initials KKK on the other side, and, and embroidered on his cap, a beret that said, uh, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a semi-automatic handgun uh, in a holster. So he- So much for being discreet. <laughs> yeah. So he comes in and uh, Mr. Kelly is walking right behind him in this uh, dark blue suit and tie. And the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me and just froze right in place, you know, and Mr. Kelly did not realize that his Nighthawk, you know, Hawk had stopped short. So he slammed into his back and knocked him forward. And now they both are like stumbling around, you know, <laughs> it's like Laurel and Hardy kind of thing. And I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting at the table, like watching this comedy and, and I could see their faces. I mean, I could read their faces like a highway billboard sign. And, and their, their faces were saying, did the desk clerk give us the wrong number, wrong room number? <laughs> you know, it, it's just an ambush, I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> and so I, I saw that apprehension. And so I stood up and I displayed my palms so they could see I had nothing in my hands. And I walked forward and I extended my right hand. And I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, I'm Daryl Davis. And he shook my hand and the Nighthawk shook my hand. So, so far, so good. I said, come on in, please, come on in, please have a seat. Mr. Kelly sat down and the Nighthawk stood at attention to his right. And before I could sit down, Mr. Kelly says to me, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? I said, sure. And I produced his my driver's license, gave it to him. And he looked at it and he goes, oh, you live on such and such street in Silver Spring. Now, that had me a little concerned because all he has to do is look right. at me. Yeah, look at my name, look at my picture, look at me. You know, you don't, you know, you don't need to be reading my street address and stuff, you know, unless you're going to come by and burn a cross or something. So, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> um, I was a little concerned, but I didn't want to let him know that I was a little unnerved. So I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live. And you live at, and I named his house number and his street. That way I was, you know, letting him know, yeah. you know, I'm leveling the playing field. You come visit me, exactly. I'm going to come visit you. So we're going to confine all this visiting to this motel room. And so he smiled, he nodded his head like he understood. I did not find out that day, but it was several months later 
that I had no reason to be presumptuous about him and fear that he would come to my house for nefarious activity. Uh, what it was, was one of his clansmen, who I didn't know, lived right down the road from me and in two neighborhoods over. Mr. Kelly would have to drive down my street to get to that guy's mm -hmm. neighborhood. So it was, it was small just pure, world. Yeah, small world, man. You know, so just pure coincidence. But I had no way of knowing that that day. So anyway, uh, you know, we got, you know, we started the interview. And um, every time, you know, he would say, well, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, I'd reach down to get the Bible out of the bag. Or, you know, my cassette ran out of tape. I'd reach down to get a fresh uh, cassette. Every time I reached down, the Nighthawk reached up to his hip. And so, you know, which I understood, you know, he's doing his job. And he has no idea what's in my bag. And it's his job to protect his boss. So after, you know, a, a, a little bit of this, he relaxed. He realized there was no threat in the bag. And I went in and out of the bag. He didn't move. A little over an hour into this uh, interview, there was a very quick, uh, short noise that came out of nowhere. Like a, that was it. Just like that. And we all jumped. You know, we're just talking. Often this noise happens out of nowhere. And we all jumped. And I flew out of my seat and hit the table because I was getting ready to come across that table and attack. And what had happened was um, I thought Mr. Kelly had made this noise. In fact, I knew in my mind he had made this noise because I didn't make it. So process of elimination. If I didn't do it, he had to have done it. And because the noise was so short and so fast, my ear could not discern what it was. But because I could not discern what it was, I became fearful and I feared for my life and my safety. Because in the back of my head, I'm hearing that other guy say, Daryl, don't fool with Roger Kelly, he'll kill you. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, what had I done? What had I said to cause Mr. Kelly to make some bizarre noise that I perceived to be ominous because I could not figure out what it was. And, you know, when you fear for your life, uh, you go into what's called survival mode. And in survival mode, you only have about four options as to what you can do. Some people, they, they pass out, they just faint because the fear is so great, their brain can't process it and just shuts down and they fall out. I don't do that. Other people, their, their muscles will constrict and they'll tighten up and they can't move. That's called paralysis by fear. You know, you can be beating on them and they won't even be deflecting the blows because they, they can't move. So I don't do that either. The third thing people will do is to run away. And that is the best option. And that, <laughs> and that is what I would have done had that been available to me. You know, the best thing to do, you know, if you fear for your life, is to separate yourself from the source of fear as quickly as you can. Go somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, but that was not an option for me because you cannot outrun a bullet in a motel room. No, and, you can't. You know, I was not, I was not armed. My secretary was not armed. The only person who I knew for sure who was armed was the Nighthawk. I could see his gun. Um, everybody could see his gun. Everybody could see his gun. And I did not know whether or not Mr. Kelly had a weapon up under his suit and you know, suit jacket or not. I was on my way to do. I came up out of my chair at the table because I was going to dive across the table, grab Mr. Kelly, grab the Nighthawk, and slam them down to the ground and disarm the Nighthawk to immobilize, you know, the situation. And um, when I hit the table, I'm looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes because I knew he had made this noise. 
And I didn't say a word to him. I just looked right into his eyes. But my eyes were speaking for me. They were saying to him, what did you just do? But his eyes were fixated on my eyes. And he didn't say a word either. But I could read his eyes. His eyes were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on the butt of his gun, looking back and forth between both of us, like, what did either one of y'all just do? And so Mary was sitting on top of the dresser to my left because there were no more chairs. She realized what had happened, and she began explaining it to us when it happened again. The ice in the ice bucket had begun melting. <laughs> the cans of soda shifted down the ice. That was it. You know, so somebody almost got killed over a damn ice cube, right? So we all began laughing, all of us, at how ignorant we had all been. You know, yeah, you know, we're enemies. You know, I'm a black guy. He's in the Klan. But yet we're in the same motel room, sitting at the same table, having a conversation, agreeing on some things, disagreeing on other things. But we're not at each other's, at each other's throats, but all because... Uh, of our ignorance, we became fearful of one another. So I won't say that this was a learning moment, but I'll say that it was a teaching moment. The learning will come later. And the lesson taught is this, all because some foreign, an underscore, underline, circle, highlight the word foreign, entity of which we were ignorant, that being the bucket of ice, cans of soda, entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful of each other. So the lesson taught is this, ignorance breeds fear. We fear the things we don't understand. We didn't understand the bucket of ice and the noise. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will escalate and breed hatred because we hate the things that frighten us and that leads to anger. If you don't keep that in check, that will escalate and breed destruction. We want to destroy the things that we hate because they frighten us. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. So we saw the whole chain almost unravel to completion. Had the Nighthawk drawn his gun and shot somebody, namely me or my secretary, or had I pounced across the table and hurt one of them? So fortunately, it stopped just short of that last component. However, we all in this country saw that whole chain unravel to full completion three years ago next week on August 12th, 2017 in the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, which is two hours from where I live, where they had this big uh, white supremacist rally. And um, on that day, there was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville it escalated to a lot of hatred in Charlottesville. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction. When a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and tried to murder as many counter protesters as he could by driving the vehicle full force into the crowd of them, he succeeded in injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. So ignorance breeds fear, breeds hatred, breeds destruction. And, yeah. And so, you know, and that's that's universal because, you know, I, I, I give lectures all the time, mostly to colleges and universities, adults, things like that. But sometimes I lecture at, at uh, middle schools and high schools and stuff. And I can tell you, when, when I'm lecturing to, to kids, 
like in middle school and stuff, I'll just be talking casually like this. And then all of a sudden I'll say, hey, 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 there's a snake under your chair. And I'll point down at somebody in the front row. And just at my suggestion that there is a snake under this person's chair, all the kids from five, 10 rows back scream, mm -hmm. they all throw their legs up in the air, screaming because of some alleged snake being under the front row chair. And so then they realize, you know, there's no snake under there. And um, and they start laughing. And I say, well, you know, why, why did you all scream? You know, why did you all throw your legs up in the air? And the answers you get are, I'm afraid of snakes. They scare me. I hate snakes. Well, now there's your fear. There's your hatred. Well, why do you hate snakes? Why are you afraid of them? Well, because they're, they're, they're slimy and they're poisonous. Well, there's your ignorance. You know, if you ever touch a snake, it's not slimy, it's dry. And, and not all snakes are poisonous. So there's your ignorance. Ignorance leads to fear, which leads to hatred. So then I say to these kids, okay, you know there's no snake under your chair. I was just joking. However, let's just say there really was a snake under your chair. What would you want me to do about it? You know what they say? Kill it. Kill it. There's your destruction. Okay. So if you want to solve this problem of racism, I think we, we're going about it ass backwards. Uh, the, the tactic that we're using works in a, in a corporate structure or department, all right, where you have to, uh, it's all trickled down from the top. When, when management is tight, the people down, on, on, down below are tight. When management is loose up there, they're going to be loose downstairs too. Okay, because they you know they take their cues from the top. It's, tri it's trickle down, but with racism, you got to solve it trickle up. Start at the bottom. Forget about the top. The top level is just is our destruction. When something is destroyed, it is not coming back. All right, George Floyd is not coming back. Right, Floyd. All right, that is a symptom. The next level down, the hatred, the anger, that's a symptom. Also, forget about it. Next level down is the fear, another symptom. Forget about it. The root cause is ignorance. That is the cancer. All right. If you have cancer in your bone, you can't put some topical cream on top and just rub it in or put a band-aid on top. You got to go down to the bone and hit it with that chemo or that radi excuse me, radiation. All right. So we have to address the ignorance because if we cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear because we fear that of which we are ignorant, that of which we don't know. If you cure the ignorance, we have nothing to fear. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to be angry about. With nothing to be angry about, you're not going to destroy anything. All right, so let's focus on the, on the root cause, the ignorance. And the good thing is this. There is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. That's what cures ignorance. And that's where we need to focus our energy, not on the destruction, the hatred, the uh, fear and all that. Let's go to the root cause. So expounding on that a little bit uh, with your exposure and stuff, can you can you speak to that and, and tell what you mean by the exposure and where we need to actually start? Because you're right, we're seeing that right now. No one wants to hear each other's side anymore. Right. Uh, and I, I don't I don't even necessarily know if there's a side, but no one wants to hear each other's side. Everyone wants to just get their point out. So there's that platform that you talk about, but no one's hearing it because it's falling on deaf ears on both sides. So with the exposure, can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. 
as I said, um, you know, I mean, I, I had the benefit of, of traveling all over the world. That, that does not make me a better person than anybody else. It just gives me a broader perspective. But, you know, we don't have to travel all over the world like I did to see things that are different. We just have to get out of, get out of our own neighborhood, you know, go, go to the next city over, go to the next state. You know, th th this, this country is all of ours. You know, if you live in New York, Los Angeles is also your city. The Grand Canyon is yours. The Washington Monument is yours. You know, the Alamo down there in Texas is yours, you know, even if you live in New York, because this is your country. Get out and see your country. Start by seeing your state. You know, start with people in your own neighborhood, you know, that you don't know. Get to know somebody different. That, that exposure will give you an education. Um, one of my favorite quotes of all time is by Mark Twain, and it's called the travel quote. And Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. Hmm. You know, you don't have to go across the Atlantic Ocean. Just get out of your neighborhood. And, and we can do that because this country is very diverse. We can get an education right here. And you don't have to go that far. Or, or get on the internet, you know, meet somebody on there or something. That thing's huge. The internet, that thing is yeah. huge. So yeah. uh, kind of a, uh, a second part to that is you say get out and travel. I, I still feel though, and, and I want your thoughts on it. I still feel that there's people out there that don't want that. The, the, so how do we get through? And it's on both sides. Yeah. They don't want that. They don't want that breakdown. They don't want to ever come together as a community. They don't want to ever move forward. They want to stay in their own thoughts. So when you have someone like that, how do you move past that? Okay. We well, have to understand that people are, are, they don't like change. You know, they, they don't like change. And as I said, I, I give um, 60 to 80 lectures a year, except for during lockdown, right? Uh, around this country, mostly colleges and universities. And I can tell you uh, every two to three out of every 10 lectures I give, this will happen. You know, I'll do the lecture, then I'll do a Q&A. And then even after I finish, students will come up to the podium. You know, they want to ask one last question or touch one of the robes that I brought or whatever. And But there'll be one student, a girl or a guy standing way over there in the distance. And I've come to learn what's going to happen. He or she is waiting for the crowd to, to leave me alone and move on. And then they come over. And they kind of hem and haw and they say, oh, you know, I enjoyed your lecture, Mr. Davis. And then they look around, make sure nobody's within earshot. And then they say, you know, my mother's in the Klan or my father's a neo-Nazi or whatever. And, and they say, you know, I was raised that way. And now I'm here at University of whatever. And um, I'm, I'm dating this Jewish guy or my girlfriend is black or I'm dating some guy from Pakistan or, you know, whatever. And so... They say, you know, they were raised that way in the, you know, back home at, at, high, at high school in their neighborhood. And you realize in the neighborhood, everybody goes to the same high school. They read the same books. They go to the, they shop at the same grocery store. They vote for the same candidate. They cheer the same sports team, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's very homogenous. And now when they come away and they go to college or university, the neighborhood doesn't come with them. 
There are neighborhoods from all over the country that are there at that high school and maybe all over the world. And now they're being exposed to something you know, that was not in their neighborhood. They realize that you know Jewish people don't have horns and black people don't have tails and all sorts of stuff you know, that they were mythical or whatever. Um, and they don't know how to go home and explain that because they, they tell me, you know, if, if I took my, my boyfriend or girlfriend home, my parents will kill me or, or they'll disown me. And if I tell my friend, you know, they'll drop me. So they got this secret that is burning on their chest, causing an ulcer, and they don't know how to deal with it and they have to unload. So I'm the perfect person for them to come to and talk to about that, you know, because their parents wanted them to go to college and get an education. But they didn't want them, they did not want them to get that education, you know. So, right. <laughs> um, but you know, these are things you know that have to be addressed. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, you know, you uh, you, you hit it, uh, Dustin. Um, that people don't want to make that change because they, they get accustomed to that, and change is a, is a very is a very radical thing. People don't like to be uprooted, and you know, especially when when they when they are okay. But when other people need change because they're not treated right, that's when the problem starts. So, so and, I, and let me let me let me interrupt there, Daryl. I think what's crazy about change is whether it's something in your personal life or change in in um, how you feel about things. A lot of people won't do the changing unless they're forced to do the changing in some way or the other. And I think that's that's the struggle is don't put yourself in a place where you're forced to change because you can't control it at that point. Right, change on your own terms. Right. I think there's a huge difference between those two things. Right, and and but you know, but there are ways that you can accelerate that change. Yeah, because you know, it's just like let's let's take Rosa Parks for example. You know, the the day that um, that the Montgomery, Alabama bus lines changed the laws and said, okay, you know, blacks can sit wherever they want to sit on the bus, did not change the attitudes of the other white riders. They still felt the same way, but they were they were compelled to obey the new rules unless they wanted to get locked up or something. So, uh, you know, you can legislate change of behavior, but you cannot legislate change of feeling or attitude. You know, that True. time. Um, that, that's why education is so important at a young age to teach people things the right way. This is why we need to be uh, assertive with our schools and with our churches, because that's where we get most of our, our knowledge and education. And here's what happens. Um, you know, I'm a Christian. I was a deacon in my church and all that kind of stuff. But I, I get very disappointed when, um, when when I see this happening. And I don't care if you're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're Mormon, you're Jewish, whatever you are. Uh, you all have some form of Sunday school. And, you know, which is usually taught in the basement of the, of the place, right? And in Sunday school, we all learn that uh, that God made a rainbow. You know, we're all God's children, all different colors, this, that, and the other. We're supposed to love one another as, as, we, as we want to be loved ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we reach puberty or, ad, or adolescence, we get kicked out of Sunday school and kicked upstairs to the big room where we sit with the adults and our parents in the main congregation. And But here's the problem. The priest, the rabbi, the minister, the pastor, whatever you want to call the clergy, stops teaching the Sunday school lesson. He or she is no longer saying we're all God's children. God made a rainbow because what would happen if, let's say, uh, a Catholic um, priest said, hey, you, to the congregation, hey, you all, you know, it's OK. You all can go out and, and marry Jewish people if you want to. 
or or some Protestant minister says, hey, you know, it's okay, y'all, all all you people, you can go out and marry black people if you want to, half the congregation would get up and walk out, or they would fire that, uh, that clergy. But one thing's for sure, they would not be putting their tithes and offerings into that collection plate, because you only pay money for what you want to hear. You don't pay for what you don't want to hear. And that's a problem because these these clergy are putting um, money above morality. They know what's right, but but the church needs money, and the and the and the pastor needs a job, so he's going to put that money above that morality and not teach that Sunday school lesson anymore. So why why is the Sunday school lesson being taught to the little kids? Because the little kids don't have any money. It's the parents upstairs that have the money that they want. All right. So look, you know, why do we have white Baptist churches and black Baptist churches? Right. Okay. Because it's, it's the same back. You know, we still believe the same thing. Well, the reason being is because black Baptists couldn't go to the white Baptist church back in the day. Now perhaps they can go there, but there's still sometimes a fine line, even where you where where they are together, because you know, a black Baptist might say to a white Baptist, um, do you accept me as as your brother in Christ? And the white Baptist says, oh, yeah, of course I do. You know, we, we're, we're, we're Baptists. You know, we believe in Christ. Yeah, you, you're my brother in Christ. And then the black Baptist asks the white Baptist, well, now you accept me as your brother in Christ, but would you accept me as your brother-in-law if your sister wanted to marry me? <laughs> that might be a different story, right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, you see where I'm coming from. Absolutely. You know, that's because... That 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 preacher, rabbi, pastor, minister, priest, whatever, stops teaching that Sunday school lesson. It's got to so, continue. So once again, we go back to how do we solve this? Uh, we have a question that came in, if you don't mind me reading sure. it to you. How do we have these conversations with our kids? We're blessed to live in a... Excuse me. We're blessed to live in a very diverse area. So even though my kids are white, how do we address all the stuff they hear in social media and other ignorant sources? Our kids seem so confused right now. You got to sit down and talk to your kids and explain and show them. Don't hide it from them. Say, look, you know, this is what some people believe. This is what other people believe. This is what we believe. And this is what I'm teaching you, you know, and you need to make up your own mind. Show them the difference. Show them, show them all these things, and show them all the contributions that this country was built upon. You know, black contributions, female contributions, uh, Asia Pacifica American contributions, you know, Latino America co- contributions, etc. This, this is what makes this country great. And yeah. this is why it's important for them to learn this in school. But, but talking about race in school is a taboo these days, uh, and that taboo needs to be lifted. When I, you know, I'm 62. When I was in um, in uh, what what, what they call middle school today, but it was junior high back then, um, sex education was being introduced. And man, I tell you what, parents were having a fit. Uh, You know, they they weren't teaching their kids that at home, and they didn't want their kids learning that at school. So where were they supposed to learn it? In the street. And and, and guess what? When they learned it in the street, those parents became grandparents sooner than they wanted to be. That's right. And and if, if a kid... If a parent wanted wanted their child to learn sex ed in school, they had to send a note signed, and then and then that kid could take the class. Today, sex ed is a part of the regular curriculum because that taboo has been lifted off, and as a result, kids are better educated, they're better informed about STDs, venereal disease, 
family planning, contraception, etc. They can make better informed decisions. That same taboo needs to be lifted off the topic of race. But I'm going to tell you something that a lot of people don't talk about, uh, especially the media, that's, that's happening. And, and it needs to be addressed because it's going to happen regardless. Um, when, I, you know, when I was a kid, the, the black population in this country was 12%. Native Americans, 1%. Latino, Hispanic people, 2 and 3%. Uh, Asians, 4%. White people were like 84, 86%. So uh, this country was built on a two-tier society, white supremacy and slavery. And as we progressed over the years, we progressed like this, maybe like this, but we never progressed like this. Okay. Okay. So now, if you look at the census over the years, and even now, you will see that Native Americans remain 1%. Uh, black people remain 12%, 12.9%, almost 13%. So we really haven't grown. Um, uh, Asians have moved up to 6%, but Hispanics but, have moved up to yeah. 17%. So now if you take just black people at 12% and Hispanic people at 17%, that right there is 29% non-white. So this is happening, you know, just by nature. All right. And it is well predicted in 2042, which is 22 years from now, this country will be 50-50. 50% white, 50% non-white. And while there are a lot of white people who embrace that and say, hey, that's evolution, that's what happens, I don't have a problem with that, there's also a percentage that are becoming unhinged and disconcerted about it. Because when you have sat on the throne of power, for 401 years, we first came over here in 1619 as slaves. So 401 years, when you sat on the, on the throne of power for that long, you don't want to get off. And now your throne legs are being whittled down and you're being lowered down to the level of the inferior people, because these are supremacists we're talking, right? That is very disconcerting. And that's why we're seeing all these groups pop up you know, white nationalist groups, white supremacist groups, white separatist groups, the alt-right, et cetera, saying, come join us. You know, we're going to take our country back. We're going to build that wall. We're going to get rid of these people, blah, blah, blah. So people, but people are fearing their landscape is changing. It's changing color. And what the Klan and neo-Nazis and alt-right people tell me, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation. And that is what they fear. So they go and join these groups to take the country back, to make America great again, all right? So, but when those groups don't act, then they figure, you know what? If the Klan can't do it, I'll do it myself. And that's when they walk into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, boom, 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 or into the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, boom, 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 or the uh, Walmart down there in El Paso, boom, 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 right? These are called lone wolves, okay? And... We have intelligence agencies that have operatives who can join these groups undercover and, and gather intelligence and, and foil the plots. But you cannot infiltrate a lone wolf. It's only one person. And as we get closer and closer to 2042, unfortunately, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves. Because every time one of these guys gets busted and they raid his house or whatever, what do they find? 
they find a cache of automatic weapons for the race war, uh, what they call Rahoa, R-A-H-O-W-A. Rahoa is the white uh, supremacist term for racial holy war. It's also called the Boogaloo. So Rahoa or the Boogaloo is what they've been predicting. It's what they've been wanting. And, uh, and these people are coming, you know, coming unhinged. You remember back in 1999, everybody was, was becoming unhinged about 2000, Y2K. You know, my VCR won't work. This is going to be the end of the world and so on. That same anxiety is happening with these people surrounding 2042. And this is why we have to be vigilant. We have to be, you know, address these things now, be proactive rather than reactive. And that is why education and exposure is so important. Um, that, that change is going to happen naturally. Okay. But we can, we can prepare people for it through education. So, so, so what I want to add is, um, you know, talk about, you know, white people being on the throne and all this. Does does any one race need to be on the throne anyway? No. In the first place. Well, I mean, exactly. And then and then secondly to that is um I think there's a a lost identity or, or, or lost cause where one has to be above the other. And I think the equality part is almost being lost. It's about having having an advantage of one or the other. And I think that's, can you speak to that and yeah. how you feel about that? And what's cool, because today I think that's what's going on in our society is it's not about equality. It's about, I need to have a leg up on one or the other, whatever side you're on. Well, you know, here's the thing. This country is has a unique uh, history. Not, not that other countries don't have a, a similar history, but we are unique in regard to many countries in that we owned people, okay? Uh, as property, and human beings were being bought and sold on the courthouse steps. Uh, some 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 people bought the whole family. Some people divided them up. You know, just stripped them of their identities. That kind of thing, and and that is a difference that that makes this country uh, what it is today. Uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, a lot of black people moved to France because, and and French people are more white than white Americans over here. You know, you're talking about pure white, all right? Uh, they treated us as equals because they know there's only one race and that's the human race. There are subsets of the human race, you know, different colored people, et cetera, et cetera, but it's still the same race, the same species. Uh, over here, we, we have races, the black race, the white race, the Hispanic race, et cetera. And, uh, and, and over here, we have that one drop rule where one drop of black blood makes you black. No other country has that, you know. Right. If if, if your if your mother was uh, was Italian, and and your father was Vietnamese, you would say, "I'm half Italian, half Vietnamese." Right. But, but but in this country, if your mother is white and your father is black, you're black. Simple as that. Yes. Okay. That that's that one drop rule, that which is crazy. All right. But France didn't have that, so you know they'd go there and they'd be treated equally. Um. So that puts us in a different kind of position because we own people and we and we've never gotten over that. So a lot of people are still fighting the Civil War, if you will. Um, the Civil War ended officially in 1865, but it never really ended. It simply mutated. The Civil War was fought over slavery. Okay. 
I don't care what people want to say. They can say, no, 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 it's fought over states' rights. Yeah, the state's right to own a slave. Right. Okay? So uh, when when it officially ended in 1865, it just simply mutated. You know, okay, so now I can't own you, but you know what? You're not going to be my equal. You're going to drink from that water fountain. You're going to use that restroom, and you cannot come inside my restaurant. If you want food, you got to go around to the back door and get it out that way. Or you got to ride in the back of the bus, so forth and so on. So it mutated from slavery into segregation. And then when integration and desegregation came about, um, that was just another mutation. Because now, okay, I got to let you in, but in, into my building, but you're going to have your own seating section. You know, you can't sit with white people. You got to sit over in the backside or that room over there or whatever. You have your own seating. Uh, and then when that uh, ended, it, again, it mutated. Okay, so now I have to hire you to work in my company, but you're not going to have a desk. You're going to mop the floors and clean the bathrooms. And then when that ended, um, and now we got a desk, well, you're not going to get promoted. You're going to stay right there at that level. So it just keeps mutating. And so this is, this is again, why education is so important to show the contributions of people who built this country. And, I mean, I mean, and it goes for, for, uh, for, for women also. Women in this country still today in the 21st century are making 79 cents on a man's dollar for the same amount of work. That needs to stop. It needs to stop. You know, people need to be treated equally. And, you know, there, there are third world countries that treat their people equally. There are third world countries that have female presidents and prime ministers and things like that. You know, we care more about uh, gender and color than we do about, you know, We need our ideology to catch up with our. Daryl, can you uh, can you go back for a minute? You froze up for a second, so okay. you were talking about the wage gap. If you can just start kind of right there. Yeah, sure. Uh, even today, in the twenty first century, women in, in our country are making seventy nine cents to a man's dollar for the same amount of work, and that's not fair. That that needs to change. Um, you know, we talk about third world countries. A lot of third world countries have female presidents. You know, we, we are more concerned about gender and color than we are about uh, one's ability to run uh, our nation. We, you know, we shouldn't care about whether somebody is black or white or male or female or Catholic or Protestant. You know, you, you go back to, uh, you know, to uh, JFK, you know, when, when, when he ran for president, people were freaking out because he was going to be the first Catholic. Uh, president, you know, can, can a Catholic wow. can a can a Catholic run this country? And then think back to 2008, it was the same thing all over again with Mitt Romney. Can a Mormon run the country? You know, who cares what religion somebody is as long as they can run this country for everybody? That's what we need to focus on, and that's why I say education is so important, and that's why we need to to um to to start this at an early age. And one of you know one of the ways that we we can do this, uh, in my opinion, and, and I've been you know I don't I don't speak for everybody, and there are people who who would disagree with me, but I do have people who do agree with me because I've been saying this for 22 years. One of the things we can do is uh, is get rid of Black History Month, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, we needed Black History Month at one time because there was no Black history being taught in schools. 
of what was being taught was called American history. And for all practical purposes, it may as well have been called white history because that's all it was. Uh, white people were being given credit for places they did not discover and for things they did not invent. We knew you know, what we had invented and what we had discovered, but we were not in the, in the textbooks. So officially we didn't do it, right? Uh, and we had to fight, fight, fight to get our history taught. We finally got one week and it was established by a black fellow named Carter G. Woodson and it was called Negro History Week. And we kept on fighting and we finally got one month because, you know, nobody's going to give us everything at one time, right? They're going to dole it out. <laughs> so so um, anyway, so we got this one month. And what month did we get? The February. shortest month of the year. February, oh, right? Yeah. Come on now. And um, oh, that, that, that's by design. It's not by coincidence. And so we accepted February. We accepted it for two reasons. Oh, it was the, the birth month of two of our heroes, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. They both were born in February. So we accepted it. But, and we needed it, and it was good. I, I remember when it came in, I don't know, you know, in the 70s when I was in junior high. But here's the problem. It has become, it has become detrimental to us now. We, you know, and, and that's our fault because we became complacent and stopped fighting. Here's the problem. Every February, we learn about uh, Martin Luther King, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, uh, Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, and one or two other ones. And by the time we get done with half a dozen, oh, we did our black thing, let's move on, and we move on. And we never revisit those people again right. until the following February. But yet we learn about Benjamin Franklin, Eli Whitney, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, Francis Scott Key, F. Scott Fitzgerald, all year long. We never, this is always being reinforced. We never forget who flew the kite and the lightning hit the key and we have electricity. We all know it's Ben Franklin. But you ask some kid in, in June, right before he's getting ready to, to matriculate, you ask him, uh, so who was Harriet Tubman? Oh, yeah, 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 I, I remember her. Uh, she was that lady who, uh, who refused to give up her seat on the bus. They got her confused with Rosa Parks because there's no reinforcement. Right. Okay, now here's the thing. What about the guy who invented the traffic light? The guy who invented the, the gas mask? The guy who invented the ironing board? You know who they are? No. Well, they were black people. But how can how can we then learn about them? Well, we only have the, the short month of February. You know, there are hundreds and, and more people that we could learn about. So what I'm saying is now we need to take, take what we learned in February, get rid of that month, and spread it out under the umbrella Absolutely. of American history. So it's taught all year long. Listen, I don't stop being black after February any more so than a woman stops being, you know, stops being a woman after March because March is Women's History Month. We, we need to get rid of that too. Put it under the umbrella of American history and everywhere along. So, Daryl, you, you this was in your documentary. You talked about this. Yeah, and, and you asked Barack Obama became the first black president, right? So now, what are we going to do in the future? Only talk about Barack Obama in February because he's black. We can't talk about him in September. Right. Who's that? But that's America. Well, you know, and, and you kind of drove this point home whenever you, in, in the documentary, when you're talking to one of the white supremacists and, and you ask him uh, who he knows from history and uh, you ask him who invented peanut butter. And he said, well, I like peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that guy, let me tell you, you're talking about Jeff Scoop. 
All right. Yes. He, yes. The he, nationalist guy. Yeah. He 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 was the commander. Uh, he uh, for 25 years of the NSM National Socialist Movement, which is the largest neo-Nazi organization in this country. And guess what? He left about a year ago. And now, really? Jeff, yeah. Now Jeff comes out with me on tour and lectures with me. Really? Uh, yes. Yes, that same guy you're talking about. Yeah. Good for y'all. Yeah. If you want, I'll, I'll hook you guys up with him. You can interview him. A absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. So, you know, I, I wanted to bring this up. You and I kind of talked about it the other night. Um, in the documentary, you you're you, you talk to people that should hate you. I mean, that's your that's your life's mission. Talk to people that should hate you and they end up loving you. But then I saw in the documentary, well, yeah, come on, guys, come on. Well, no, I, I'm not disagreeing. I love you too. But here's the thing: you, you talk to a couple of groups of uh, the BLM in Baltimore, mm -hmm. and you had the biggest argument of the entire documentary with those people, right? And the way you described it was that that uh, Ku Klux Klan, white supremacists, they they hate people that they think sold out their race or that that, that went away from it more than anybody right is that is that the feeling that you get from this group and i'm not necessarily saying as an as a, a nation okay, or let, anything let, let like explain, that let me explain the blm to you black lives matter movement right black lives matter is a movement it is not an organization a lot of people say you know the organization no 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 it's not an organization an organization is some, something to which you belong and you pay dues and there's a chat, you know, there's a national president and chapter presidents and everybody's on the same page because they all belong to that organization. This is not the case. Uh, the founders who founded Black Lives Matter did not want to centralize um, and, and they did not trademark the name. So as a result, you have 80 or 90 different groups scattered about the country called BLM, Black Lives Matter. In fact, you could you could walk out your studio right now and form your own group of BLM. I could do the same thing. Jeff could do the same thing. Um, and the problem is that there are too many chefs in the kitchen. Um, you have you have some some uh, Black Lives Matter chapters, like for example, there's one in Detroit and there's one in New York who have contacted me and said, "Hey, do you give workshops? Can you teach us how to do what you do? You know, they they, they want to be constructive, etc." And you've got other ones who who rip me a new rear end. You know, they can't stand what I do. They do not like me. They are totally against what I, I'm doing. I don't get that, though. I really don't get that. Well, they, they exist. Trust me. They trust me. And there are some who, who are like black supremacist types. So they're all across the board uh, because they're not centralized. Like, say, the NAACP, uh, the Red Cross, the Boy Scouts of America. These are centralized organizations where policy is created at headquarters and disseminated to all the chapters around the country. So everybody is on the same page. You have one national president and all the chapter presidents respond to that one national president. Not so with BLM. Each one has its own little agenda. So, uh, and here's, here's where the problem comes. Let's say the, uh, the BLM in, in Austin, Texas uh, is doing something constructive and good. Uh, but then the BLM over in Jasper does something ridiculous. The media says, the BLM did this. They don't say the Jasper BLM or the Austin BLM. Right. They just say the BLM. And so that paints a broad brush where some somebody's giving blame for something they didn't do. You understand? That's the problem. And so uh, you know, what you saw in Baltimore is not reflective of every BLM. It's reflective of some, sure, but, but not everybody. 
And uh, now those particular guys, um, they reached out to me about a year later, uh, saying, "Hey, let's get together and talk." You know, you know, they, they'd seen me in the interim, and they had a better understanding of what it was I, you know, I did, and so they wanted to talk. So we got together, we talked, we ironed things out, and we agreed to work together. And we started, and then one of them fell off the wagon again, and and we, oh. <laughs> you know, reverted back to that, to that, uh, to that, to that behavior. So you know, it happens. Go ahead, so, Jeff, because I know so you. Darryl, I know you want to kind of expand on that. Well, well so Daryl, um, that must be frustrating because really, we're all on the same sides, and I say we is um, just like you are trying to get rid of radical white supremacists, and also it seems radical black supremacists. That's kind of where I see myself. It's like. I don't believe in that. That's wrong. I don't believe in this. This is wrong. It's it's got to be somewhere in the middle that makes sense. It's not ignorant. It's not stupid that um, I can get behind because I have no problem saying Black Lives Matter. They do, absolutely. But some of the movement part of it, and some of the the um, the changes and in 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 all the different places. It, it, it kind of convolutes the situation in your right. I think I've been a victim to seeing it in so many different places and going, wait, that's what that's about? Well, oh, no, over here, oh, they're doing this. Right. And um, I think it's such an inconsistent message. How important is it to have a central organization? Very in, important. In, are they doing themselves a disservice by not yes, doing it? Absolutely. And, and now, listen. The, the founders had a great idea when they formed this movement. Uh, the, the idea was to put the national spotlight on the plight of black men who, for lack of a better word, were being murdered by white police officers for holding their cell phone or their gun or, I mean, their gun, their wallet or whatever. Um, police brutality. Yeah, okay, excessive force. Um, you know, they, these black guys got to go to their grave white men in the same situation either went to went home or they went to jail some went to jail via burger king like uh, like dylan roof you know about that right to charlotte charlotte uh, charleston. charleston charleston i'm sorry yeah. yeah you know um he he walked into that black church shot up nine people having bible study and when the cops caught up with him and arrested him he said he was hungry and the police <laughs> drove him to burger king bought him no. a burger and then took him to jail and processed him. So, you know, uh, here's the man who was a mass murderer, just murdered nine people in Bible study, in cold blood, armed to the teeth. He committed a violent crime, and he got to go to Burger King, and he's still living. You take somebody like Eric Garner, the original I Can't Breathe guy, up on Staten Island, New York, who was standing on the sidewalk selling loose cigarettes. Remember that? And the cops pounced on him, body slammed him down to the ground and choked him on. He wasn't even resisting, choked him on camera. He's saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Choked him to death. And they were acquitted. That, that was, a, you know, was he breaking the law? Yes. Should he have been arrested? Yes. It, it, it is illegal to sell tobacco without a license. But should he have, should he have been murdered? No. All right. It was a nonviolent crime. Uh, George Floyd allegedly was had passed a counterfeit $20 bill. We will never know if George Floyd knew he passed a, a, a fake $20 bill or not. 
Um, maybe he did know. It's it's the clerk's job to know, you know, money. And the clerk recognized this as possibly being a counterfeit bill. And he did the right thing. He called the police because he doesn't know if this man is, is you know, passing counterfeit money. Uh, you know, he has to get arrested and go to court. So, but we don't know if George Floyd knew knew that and was doing that intentionally. He could have had a hundred dollar bill in his pocket yesterday and went and bought something and the clerk gave him some 20s back. And one of them That's was true. You know, we have no idea. That would have been found out in a court of law. And he never had his day in court. That's the problem. All right. The cop acted as executioner, court, judge, everything. So, um, but even passing a counterfeit $20 bill is a nonviolent crime. He should have been right. arrested, ticketed, and gone to court. So that's what I'm saying. You got you got a white guy who walks into a black church, shoots up the place, and goes to Burger King, and and somebody who commits nonviolent crimes get choked to death on camera. Um, that's why Black Lives Matter was created to put the national spotlight on that. Because when you put the national spotlight on it, then everybody sees it, and you're in a fishbowl, and laws begin to change. Sure. We got that idea from Martin Luther King, who who organized the bus boycott. Uh, after Rosa Parks. And you know, Rosa Parks was a setup. You know that, right? No, no. No, you didn't know. Okay, see, this is what Nikkei, back then, back then the, t the story couldn't be told, but it's told now. Um, there had been other black women who had refused to give up their seat on the bus. Rosa Parks was not, was not the first. Um, but those, you know, it only made news around Montgomery, Alabama. It didn't make national news, right? So we needed that okay. spotlight. So um, Dr. King chose Rosa Parks. She volunteered to, to go on the bus and be arrested because that bus driver was known to do these kinds of things. And oh. she, you know, she was a seamstress, but she was also the secretary of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP. And so she, you know, she, she, she knew she was gonna be arrested. And, and the white guys that got on the bus and wanted the seats, all that kind of stuff, they were part of the plot and because they had to put the national spotlight on it. And so it worked. And everybody was looking. And then when 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 the bus when the uh, boycott was over, the Montgomery bus lines figured, hey, you know what, you know we got to change our laws. And so all the other southern towns began changing their laws. That was the ripple effect because they knew, uh oh, you know if we don't change our laws, you know Dr. King will be over here too, messing with us. So it, it, it had a ripple effect. So that that's what the national spotlight does. And uh, I I don't think the founders had any idea how big BLM. Would uh, would mushroom, otherwise they probably would have would have organized it because as because right now you know we've come we've come a long ways, but we are dividing ourselves just by what you say. You say, oh, I see these guys doing this, but those guys are doing that. Well, well, well what is the real BLM? Well, what do they really stand for? You know, and that's the problem. We are dividing ourselves, and that's our fault. So that needs to be corrected. In, in the only. Go ahead, Dustin. Go ahead. The only thing that I worry about in that, in, in, when we talk about that, and you you bring up certain cases and stuff, the the thing that worries me is is once again we're talking about individuals. Um, when we talk about uh, those police officers that were involved in that, we're talking about individuals. And what I see happening is all police officers are being clustered into that mold, where. Um, they're being called and it's on a national level where they're being called racist or they're looking out for stuff. And I think that's a very dangerous precedent to set that happens. Um, you know, 
the the thing I worry about here is you bring you classify a group of people, which is what we're talking about in general, as everyone is the same. Everyone is not the same, and I worry that we we might go so far over that 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 happens in well, the other direction. Here's here's the problem with the police. Um, and a lot of it they bring on themselves. Right? I'm not I'm not anti law enforcement, but I'm 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 pro legitimate law enforcement. And here's the problem: we generally talk about two categories of police. Uh, we talk about good cops and bad cops. Well, there's a third category that that very few people talk about. Um, and and what we hear is this: when when a police officer in the rare instance, because it's very rare that they get charged and, and, and even more rare that they get convicted in a court of law, police officers, because they have the color of authority to do all these kind of things. Um, when, when they first are accused, the PIO, meaning the public information officer for the police, or the uh, chief comes on uh, to the media and says, you know, he followed proper police procedure or whatever, he feared for his life. That's always a catchphrase. He feared for his life before he shot somebody. And uh, he followed proper police procedure. It was a justifiable, we see it as a justifiable homicide, et cetera. Um, so then, when if, if it ends up in court, and in the rare instance that the officer is found guilty and, and is convicted, then the PIO or chief comes on and says, well, you know, in a department this large, you're bound to have a few bad apples. We hear that term also. I disagree. There are more bad apples than there are good apples. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because if there were only a few bad apples and there were all these good apples, wouldn't all these good apples coalesce together and get rid of those bad apples? Who wants one officer who's bad tarnishing your badge when you've busted your butt to be good and do what you're supposed to do? It's just like a basketball team, a football team. If somebody's not pulling their weight, they tell the coach, put him on the bench. We don't need him on the team. You know? So if you have all these good apples, only a few bad apples, yes, they will come together and get rid of those bad apples. Now, here, here's the third category. Okay. The third category is the honest cop. All right? Uh, which is a minority. I don't mean in terms of color. I mean in terms of numbers. Um, we all know what bad cops do. A good cop will not do those things, but a good cop will turn a blind eye and not tell on the bad cop. That's that blue wall of silence, that blue coat of silence, or, you know, where you don't snitch on your fellow officers. All right. So a good cop won't do those things, but the good cop will not tell. The honest cop will tell. And as a result, that honest cop is jeopardizing his or her, or her own safety from their fellow officers because they'll go on a call where they'll need backup and the backup won't come or they'll come very slowly endangering that cop's life because that cop snitched on them. So that, you know, you all probably saw the movie Serpico. Mm -hmm. uh, that was an honest cop. He was, he was the minority and, and they almost got him killed. I mean, he's still alive today, but uh, I mean, he changed, you know, that the NYPD culture, but it was so corrupt and he would not participate in that and he would tell. And as a result, he almost got killed by his own fellow police officers. We need a mechanism for the police so that good cops 
can tell because they are just as complicit as the bad cops if they see bad behavior, excessive force, and they're not reporting it. That is complicit. That's like, you know, well, I didn't shoot the teller. I just drove the getaway car. Well, I'm sorry. You're going to jail for bank robbery too. You know, you're complicit. All right. So we need a mechanism just like we have as citizens. If a if uh, something happens in the neighborhood and the cops can't solve it, what do they do? They come to the neighborhood and put up posters or go on TV and say, hey, you know, call, you know, if you have information, call this number anonymously. You don't need to leave your name and number, blah, blah, blah. Call, you know, give us the information. Good cops need that same kind of thing where they can blow the whistle and, and not fear retribution or ramifications. For their safety, and and that 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 would clean up a lot of police. We also need a national registry for police, which does not exist. Um, it's just like when when a, in, in those rare instances when a cop gets fired or terminated from the department for egregious behavior or whatever, what does he do? He simply goes to another department and gets hired again, and the pattern continues. Just like we hear about uh, some of these uh, Catholic priests. Who, who abuse uh, little boys and stuff. They don't go to prison. They just get shifted from church to church across, across the country. And then 40 years later, you find out, you know, they were abusing people all over the place. And then finally it catches up with them because there's no national registry. They just get moved around. Same thing with the police. There is a national child sex abuse registry. So if you abuse some little kid in uh, New York City and you go and try and, and, and you get on that registry, and you go out to, to Los Angeles and try to get a job at a kindergarten or with some, you know, Boy Scout troop, they just look on the registry doing your background check. Uh-uh, we're not hiring you because that, that record follows you. We need that for the police. So that behavior is not being uh, repeated because, you know, when you become a cop, you are given a 007 license, a license to kill. And so, you know, you must be held to a higher standard of accountability. And when you abuse that 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 license, you should not be able to move to another department and 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 be given that license again. Uh, I absolutely agree with that, and and I'm speaking from a certain perspective, but I believe that it happens a lot more than a lot of people know. I believe that 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 stuff happens in the background a lot more often. I think a lot there are a lot more, as you say, honest cops than people know about. I think that a lot of it's just one of those things that you see, just like you mentioned with the BLM groups, where this group is doing this and it's horrible, and this group is doing this. And once again, everyone's put into the same group. I think that that happens a lot more often than people know. And, and I can tell you that no one hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Mm -hmm. No one does. Or because, but, just, but how willing are the good cops uh, going to be? when they have to rely on those bad cops to cut, to have their back when they're in a shootout. Well, here, he, here's what I will say is I don't think they want them around. Right. But what I'm saying is when you use the, the, when you use the example of their cover may not come, they may not do this. So they're complicit in it. I think those cops don't want those cops around. They don't want them there during the shooting. They don't want them there during because they know that it has the possibility of going wrong. And so, not, yeah, but not wanting them there. How do they, how do they take care of that? Like, for example, you, you guys saw uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Uh, when, when um, these, these two cops shoved that old man and he fell down and banged his head mm -hmm. on the ground, got knocked out. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And then, you know, they all are like walking by him. One guy stopped and bent over and the other, the other cop said, yo, keep going, keep going. Exactly. Because he was the one, he was the honest cop. That was the honest cop. All right. He, he broke the code and they said, oh, no, 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 you're, you're not, you're not breaking, you're not breaking file here. Move along. Okay. That was the honest cop. And then when, when those two cops got, uh, got suspended, all 57 of that, of that uh, troop resigned from that department and they lied about it. They lied about it. They said the man tripped and stumbled until the video came out where two guys pushed him. So the, the, you know, these are, are these good cops or these bad cops? You know, they, they all, they all can't be bad. A lot of them were good, but how many good cops stopped to help that guy that got shoved down and, and had his head busted. And now he has a concussion. Yeah. You know, I think though that this is, and and in speaking about this, because we've been talking about this all night. I what I worry about, and it's the same thing that we've talked about all night. I worry about generalities, mm-hmm. and especially going forward into the future, generalities are going to end up hurting us. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can classify a group of people a certain way. I don't think you can classify a group of workers a certain way. I don't think you can classify a profession a certain way. And that's me speaking from how I feel about the world. And I, I think, and I think generalities will end up hurting us in the end. We, we have got to be in my eyes, more broad minded about everything. I'm going to have to one of Hold on, Josh. Say that again, Daryl. And go ahead. I, I said, I'm going to have to send you one of my songs. I wrote a song called broad minded. <laughs> okay. Oh, Nice. No, to, Go ahead, Jeff. to back up what Dustin was saying, it's not just broad-minded, but very, very, um, I, I think it's got to be very intentional. Like, your intent has to be there, um, because without intent, and without the right intent, I should say, intent's not okay. The right intent matters. And I think with police officers, or whether it's a, a Black Lives Rally organization, or whatever it is, what is the intent of the organization? What's the intent of that person? And I think um, knowing some law enforcement and knowing um, their backgrounds, um, I know personally that um, there's, like like Dustin said, a good cop really despises a bad cop, but there does have to be some internal things that happen where the bad cops or those that don't have the cut that aren't, aren't going to fit the mold need to deteriorate out of the system. There's no doubt. There's, I support that completely. And I'm sure Dustin does too. If someone's not cut out for it and and they're going to be doing some bad things and they're going to be pushing the laws of what law enforcement are, they need to be out. There's no question. And they're going to be held accountable by their own people. I I I believe that's exactly the way it should be done. I agree. You know, we, we cannot generalize or paint, you know, paint with a broad brush. I, I agree with that, it, but it's the culture, not, 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 yeah. you know, not so much the individual. I mean, yes, in individuals, but the culture, and it was the culture that, that, that scooted that cop away from the guy who fell down, you know, yeah, that was a really bad, that, 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 that was one of the worst things I've saw in a while. Pardon me. That was a, a one of the worst things I've seen is that old man with his mask on the, the whole, what, what, was it like 40 guys with shields uh, walking past them? 
and one stop to help. Or, or yeah, one stop to help, and he was told to move on. Um, you know, it's the culture, but you know, but you also have to look at it like this. Uh, you know, if you go to to uh, McDonald's or something, and and the you know the cashier does something to you uh, that that is not uh, cool or whatever, um, slaps you or insults you or calls you a some kind of a name, um, you don't necessarily sue the, uh, the the cashier. You sue McDonald's. So you know, and everybody at McDonald's is not responsible for that one cashier, but management is. So that's what I'm saying. You know, the department has to change. They have to step up to the plate. Uh, listen, I'm sure there are tons of great cops on the Minneapolis police force uh, who who do not uh, represent, or I should say, uh, Derek Sh uh, Chauvin, who who kneeled on uh, George Floyd's neck, does not represent those you know those cops. But yet they are painted with that broad brush. That now the whole department right. is painted because of that one man. But now when you look at it. When you dig deeper, you find out that Derek Chauvin had 18 complaints against him in right. a 19-year career. Absolutely, he should have been awful. Exactly, should not have been around. Perhaps if if the department had had listened to one of those 18 voices and 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 done some remedial work with this man, George Floyd might still be alive. You know, maybe they you know they they retrained him or gave him a desk job or whatever. You know, he may not have been out there on the street doing what he was doing, but they did not listen to any one of those 18 complaints. And if there were 18 complaints, that probably means that there were a lot more people who did not complain. I agree with that. So th this is what I'm talking about. We can't allow one person to taint the whole department. That's why the good cops have to coalesce and push out the bad cops. And right. This. But, but see, they're in a unique position where... Um, when they do that, they compromise their safety, whereby other groups may not be compromising their safety. They may be compromising their job, so they just get fired and go on some other job. There we go. You froze up again, Daryl. Oh, I was saying um, these these police officers are, are in rather a unique, uh, precarious position whereby other people, you know, they can, you know, they can snitch on, on each other and blow the whistle. And, and, you know, the, the worst that might happen to them is they might, you know, get fired from their job for, for telling on somebody or, you know, somebody pee in their lunch or something. But these cops, when they do that, they, you know, they're, they're putting their own safety, their, you know, life and death. Cause you know, they put their lives on the line every day. And if they are in a situation where they need backup and backup's not coming, uh, that can be, you know, live or die. And so that's a, a rather unique situation for them. So, Daryl, you know, we're, we're going on quite a while that we've been having this conversation. It's been a great conversation. How, I, I guess I, I keep going back to this same point, but, but I, I don't know that I've gotten an answer yet. Okay. How do we set down as, as a United States, as a world how do we, after all these years and all these differences between us, how do we start breaking down those layers? Because there's going to be 
I think things have changed. Would you agree with that? Things have changed. I'm not saying that it's the best that it's ever going to be or anything like that, but but we have made progress as a people. We have made progress as a people. We've come a long ways, but on the other side of the coin, we still have a long ways to go. Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. But, but right now, I think this is the best time ever. It, it's bittersweet. You know, it's been a lot of uh, violence, a lot of, you know, this, that, and the other, but uh, on the on the on the upside, we have turned or are turning another page in our history. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Barack Obama and others have turned pages uh, throughout the years, but this is another page turning. We're not near the end of the book. We're not even near the end of the chapter yet. But at least the pages are turning a little faster today. And I'm going to tell you what it is. Uh, to to your point, uh, Dustin. Um, where we need to come together. Listen, the, we have always had white people involved in our civil rights, even dating back to Rosa Parks and through the 60s with Martin Luther King. But never before have we seen this many white people marching with us. It is that collective voice that is making that change happen, making that page turn. Because in the past, the powers that be, in other words, the the establishment, um, when we were calling out for you know to be treated equally, et cetera, equal rights and the right to vote, et cetera, people were plugging their ears. They did not want to hear us. They were shutting us down, and things were not happening as quickly or not happening at all. All right, today those same people are seeing people who look just like them marching with us, and now they're pulling the earplugs out or else putting their hearing aids in and they're listening. Mm. And now things are beginning to happen a lot faster. It is that collective voice that is doing it, that united, all right? Barack Obama, like him or not, doesn't matter. It was white people who put Barack Obama in office. It was not black people, all right? Because we- There's a majority there. Exactly. We only make up 12% of, of the population and all 12% are not registered to vote. And, and some of that 12% are not even old enough to vote. But even if everybody was registered to vote of that 12%, even little babies could vote, that still would not be enough, 12%. We needed a mass of white vote to, to, to put that man in office. He never could have done that 20 years ago because the attitude was not right yet. But by 2008, there were enough people whose attitude was present to say, hey, you know what? I like that guy's policy. He has my vote, all right? It was that collective voice that made that change. Today, it is that collective voice that is making these changes. And as a result, never before have we seen such a ripple effect. Um, while these protests are, were, were geared primarily towards the police, the ripple effect is statues are being taken down, uh, um, the Confederate flag is being banned from, of all places, NASCAR, uh, Mississippi, of all places, is taking the Confederate flag out of their flag. Uh, food brands are changing. There are labels from Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, et cetera. That, that ripple effect is happening. That is a result of this collective voice. Now, the statues coming down and the flag being banned, et cetera, is not going to change anybody's attitude. It's going to be the education and exposure that does that. But those statues still need to come down and that flag still needs to be put, put away. I'm not saying they need to be destroyed or, or tarnished or whatever, 
I personally, I believe they, sh they should not be torn down. They should be taken down and put in a museum or build a Confederate park and put them over there. It's our history, right? Pardon me? That's our history. It is our history. And, and we, we, we must, it's our history. We must display our history, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the shameful. Okay? We all have it. But it does not belong in the United States. It belongs in a museum, in a park. Listen, we went to war against uh, Great Britain. The, the majority of, of white Americans in this country are of British descent. They were the first ones who came over here, right? To escape the tyranny of the king and to worship as they want to worship, et cetera. So we all learned in history. Um, so plenty of, of Americans here um, had ancestors who fought in the Revolutionary War against the United States. And we beat Great Britain. So do these English Americans go out here and build statues to King George III and fly the Union Jack? No. The loser does not get to build his or her statues on, on the winner's property or fly that flag. We went to war against Japan when they bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. There are plenty of Japanese Americans in this country right, who have ancestry that fought in that war. And I'm sure they honor their ancestors, but they don't go out and build statues over here to Emperor Hirohito and fly the Japanese flag on Pearl Harbor Day or something. Um, we went to war against Germany in World War II. There are plenty of German Americans in this country who you know have ancestors who, who, who were under the Third Reich in Germany and fought for Adolf Hitler, all right? We beat Germany, we beat Adolf Hitler. We don't have statues to Adolf Hitler here for German Americans and swastikas. So guess what? The Confederacy lost the war. They need to get over it. They don't get to build their statues and fly their flags. Yes, it's part of our history, but they can put their statues and their flags in a museum or a Confederate memorial park. This is the United States of America, not the Confederate States of America. Listen, I have as much a Confederate history in me as you all do in you. All right, my parents, like I said, I was born in Chicago only because my dad went there for a job, but my parents are from Virginia, Roanoke and Salem, Virginia. Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy. Robert E. Lee was from Virginia, all right? And uh, anybody who knows American history knows that there were blacks also who fought in the Confederacy. Blacks had to fight for their slave owners, all right? I'm a descendant of slaves. I had slave ancestors who fought in the Confederacy. So while I honor my ancestors, because without them, I wouldn't be here, I personally don't honor the Confederacy and certainly don't right. condone slavery. But um, I had ancestors who fought in the Confederacy. So fine, that's part of our history. Put it in the museum, all right? Now, those people who say, no, you know, the, the flag is heritage. It's not hate, it stands for heritage, not hate. I hear that all the time. All you got to do is go to a Klan rally with me or Google right. or Google Klan rally and look at images and you see all these robes and hoods walking around with, with Confederate flags. All right. We know what that stands for. It stands for something else. It stands for something else. So, so I tell these people who tell me it's heritage, not hate. Well, the Civil War was fought over slavery. And listen, the South has a lot to be proud of, a whole lot to be proud of. Slavery was not one of them. All right, find somebody. I agree with that. And if you really, if you really believe that flag is all about heritage, 
And, and furthermore, you know, that was not really the flag of the Confederacy. You know, the Confederate flag is a different flag. That was the battle flag that was used during the Battle of the Confederacy. And the battle was fought over slavery. So anyway, my, to my point is this. I tell these people who think it's all about heritage, that flag, I say, listen, you come go to a, a Klan rally with me. And when you see those people carrying your flag, your Confederate flag, your rebel flag, you tell them to give you back your flag because that's not what it stands for. And I tell them if they will do that, whether they give them that, that the flag or not, if they will tell them that, I will come over to their house and I will take their Confederate flag and I will hoist it up their flagpole for them. <laughs> no, I agree with you on that. I, I think the Confederate flag is, um, it, it's not something that needs to be flown. It shouldn't be around anywhere. And quite honestly, um, I agree with a lot of the stuff you just said. Um, you want to hear some um, Heritage is one thing, Absolutely. but that's not heritage. That's hate. Huh? Let's hear something funny, Daryl. Oh, um, okay. So, you know, the swastika is banned in Germany. You cannot right. use it publicly or even privately. You can't right. even have it on a wall inside your house. You get locked up. It's completely banned. So guess what the neo-Nazis over there use in place of the swastika? Probably the Confederate flag. Exactly. They use our Confederate flag. Okay, so it's, it's kind of surreal. If you go to Berlin, you see some neo-Nazi march with, with, with the Confederate flag. Now, here's something else funny. Okay, because I, I, I go to Klan rallies in the North and the South. And it sounds, I just got to tell you, it sounds so weird when you say that. that I, know, I, know. I go to Klan rallies in the North and the South, wherever they'll have me. <laughs> but listen, here's what's funny, though. The, the clans in the North, they don't use the Confederate flag. And they don't like the Confederate flag. All right? Because you know why? Because their ancestors were in the Union armies. And they lost ancestry in the Union. And the and their ancestors fought against the Confederacy. So so they don't they, they don't like the clans in the South using the Confederate flag. Who is the and and I'm glad you brought this up because I want to talk about this too, real quick. Going to these rallies, we go back to that thing, fear. That's that's not a normal thing that normal people do. A black man does not go to a Ku Klux Klan rally. You're it's asking for trouble. I mean, that's the only way I can say it. Yet it seems to work out for you. Just explain your mindset. Just one, you can say everything you want, know who you are, all those kind of things. You're on a different playing field there. Yeah. Well, there are two kinds of rallies. There are private rallies and there are public rallies. And uh, in a public rally, you know, like you know, if you were in New York City or Washington, D.C., something like that, you wouldn't get anywhere near those people because there'd be so many police because there are so many anti-people who would come with bricks and chains and baseball bats and ready, you know, ready to do damage. So there'd be a, a ring of police around them. And they, you know, we all have the right to freedom of assembly. We all have the right to freedom of speech. So those rights must be protected, whether they're for the Klan or for people like you and I. Um, but, you know, if you go to some public rally out in some rural place where people don't really care, um, you know, you can walk right up to them. Or if you go to a private rally and you're not in the Klan, you have to be invited. So I, I know people, you know, I've been invited by Grand Dragons and Imperial Wizards to come and, and see what they're all about. Um, so that's, you know, that's how I end up there. I, I just couldn't just, you know, go bust my way in there. 
Well, yeah, but going back to to what I'm saying about that is that you are going into a place that you know fundamentally at a cellular level, these people do not want you there. They yeah. do not want to hear what you have to say. And it could turn violent quickly. You, you talked about lone wolves. Yeah. So when you go to these things, how do you break that wall down? Because I think that is where we get that answer of where do we start? How do we start coming together? And you talked about, you let them have their moment. You let them talk, but how do you overcome a group of people? Cause you're a one man mm-hmm. against a group of people. How do you wear that down? I think, you know, they appreciate respect and I don't respect what they stand for but I respect their right to stand for it. And I think they see that. Uh, okay. And granted, they're, you know, they're those who just assume attack me or whatever. But uh, when they're told that I'm coming by their higher up, a grand dragon or imperial wizard, they know better than to do anything. Sorry. They don't have to talk to me or insult me or whatever. I mean, I know, you know when I'm not welcome, I can tell. But right. I feel it. But, uh, you know, but they know better than to act upon it because they will be in trouble if they, if they break the chain of command. And that, and that seems that's another one of those things that seems so uh, irregular to me that that a a group that is there to say how much they hate you, how much they hate your race, how much they hate other people, that that their their top chain of command tells them if this person is harmed, if this thing has happened, you will be in trouble. It it it, it almost seems beyond comprehension for the normal person in the world. You know, you know why? Because because you are a rational person and therefore you are looking for rationale and and you find this to be irrational and you're absolutely right. But then again, to be a racist is to be irrational. To judge somebody on the color of their skin is to be irrational. So if you are already irrational, you're going to do more irrational stuff, like have a black man at your Klan rally. You know, your irrational nature. That's, that's the only I, way I can explain it. No, I and and when you say it like that, that makes perfect sense. If you're going to be irrational, <laughs> you might as well overdo it being irrational. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I can't even imagine some of these things that you've gone to the jaws dropping on the ground as you walk in, and you know, and another thing about those where where you see it in the documentary, you see they use the N word and everything in front of you. I don't understand, too, once again, I guess we go back to being rational, how that doesn't affect your psyche at all. Because I know who I am, you know, I know and I, and I know what these people are saying uh, is not true. And I know that they have not had the travel experience that I have. I know that I, I have seen the world as it's supposed to work, you know, uh, being around people from all over the world and getting along with them. Uh, they have yet to see this. I, I know it can work because I've been there. And so do you ever have any of these people that leave these groups and, and you said yourself, you didn't convert these people. Right. Uh, you just gave them the means. Ha- have you, how many apologies have you had? Oh, I've had a lot of apologies. A lot of them. Yeah. And, and they just tell you, I'm sorry for, yeah, I'm sorry for being irrational. You, well, you, you asked the question, um, did I have to get the answer to my question? How can you hate me? We don't even know me. I got two answers. Uh, the first answer I get is because, I'm a criminal, my brain is small, I'm on welfare. And then when they end up leaving and giving me their robes and hoods, um, you know, they, they say, Daryl, you know, 
I don't know why I hate it. It, it doesn't make any sense. I, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I had no reason to hate you or hate anybody. So that's the second answer. And, and that's, that's a 180 from the original answer. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and so people can change. You know, we, we are so inundated with the idea that a tiger doesn't change his stripes, a leopard doesn't change his spots. So why would we think a clansman would change his robes and hoods? Well, the difference being is this. The leopard was born with its spots. And, uh, and and Tiger born with his track. A Klansman was not born with that ideology. It was learned so it can be unlearned. And and so other than the one we talked about from the National Socialist Movement, have you seen other people that want to go out with you and spread this word yes. and show? And, and, and so how many would you say of the people that you know that you have oh actively goodness. working with you? I'd say probably a dozen, a dozen. Um, maybe even more, but now here's the thing. Um, the people who leave the movement, if they, let's say you retire from the uh, clan or, or some, uh, other group, um, okay. you, you retire and you go away quietly and you're done. Um, nobody bothers you. Um, but if you leave and you start speaking out against them, then you can have uh, retribution. Or ramifications, um, because you know you took a blood oath to join that group. You went through a ritual to to join that group. That group becomes your family, like the mafia. You know, it's your family. You joined it, and, uh, and now you betrayed your family. Oh no, no, no! We're coming after you. That can happen. So if if the person has, let's say, young kids, or or is married, or something like that, sometimes when they when they quit and they renounce, they stay under the radar. They don't go out publicly speaking about it. They're, right. they're fearful, all right? But uh, if their kids are grown and off, you know, whatever, don't have any kids or they're not married, you know, they don't They don't care. They'll, they'll come out and talk out against it and just deal with the death threats that they, as they come in. Uh, there's a guy, look him up. His name is uh, David Lynch. Not not okay. uh, not David Lynch, the, the, the famous uh, filmmaker, but uh, just put in David Lynch, uh, uh, white supremacist or whatever. Um, at one time, he had the largest uh, white power skinhead organization that he founded in this country, and uh, I knew him. And um, you know, I, you know, he he was he was vehemently racist, anti-Semitic, and dangerous and violent. And um, over time, you know, he and I became friends, and he got out, and then he testified against some people in his group who had committed murder. Oh, wow. And next thing you know, uh, he was in his bed sleeping. And got his head blown off. Mm. So those death threats, I mean, they they are a real thing. Oh yeah. Um, and and I don't say that lightly. I mean, they they are a very real thing, and it's a very a very scary thing for those dozen people that have left this organization and left this life to come help you. Nobody a, likes a snitch, right? Not the it's police, a, not the clan, not the mafia. And, and when you were a kid and your little brother told on you, you didn't like him either. Hell <laughs> no. I whooped his ass. <laughs> no, but sorry, I had to step away, guys. I, I had knee surgery on Wednesday and I had to go to the ice pack. <clears throat> My knee was knee was getting me. But um, can I just ask you about something else that's not so intense? Anything you want. What was it like um, playing with Chuck Berry? That was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Uh, I played I played with Chuck Berry for 32 years. 
not not every gig, but a lot of gigs. Chuck Berry was a genius, a genius. Okay, he invented rock and roll. Without Chuck Berry, there would be no Elvis Presley, no Beatles, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, Ted Nugent, Jimi Hendrix, anybody who plays rock. All their DNA goes back to Chuck Berry. A really? People, yeah. A lot of people can say, I play the guitar, I sing a song. But how many people can say, I invented a genre of music? Ludwig That's Ron amazing. Beethoven, yeah, Beethoven can say it. Chuck Berry can say it. You know? Not, not that he would say it. You know, he was very humble. But the man was a genius. He, he just thought a whole different way. He, he was, his brain was wired differently than anybody else's. And my, my, you know, my favorite song of all time is uh, Johnny Be Good. And to sit on stage oh, wow. and play that song with that man and hear 10,000 people out there singing, go, Johnny, go. I mean, it's just amazing, amazing. Have you ever seen Back to the Future? Yep. So you know about his cousin, Marvin Berry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Marvin. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you ever meet Marvin in all your travels? No, I, didn't, I did not meet Marvin. So uh, let's let's talk about your music for a little bit because we we've talked about the serious stuff. So let's let's talk about a, a little of the lighter stuff. You uh, play pretty much every kind of music there is. Now you have a degree in jazz, correct? I have a degree in jazz from Howard but, University. That's right. So you have played all over the world with all kinds of people. In your mind, greatest show you've ever played? The one I got paid the most money for. <laughs> <laughs> okay so maybe we should approach this question a different way how much did you get paid for that but don't say whose it was <laughs> uh i got paid a, a good sum of money for that okay yeah yeah well, who's um but you know no seriously uh i've had a lot of great shows uh some with my own band some with chuck berry some with other uh, artists and things like that uh you know i i love music and and, and, and let me tell you something about you know, about rock and roll you know, that is race related that a lot of people don't realize. All right. Um, that, you know, we, we undercredit rock and roll for what it has done for race relations. Because back in the day, theaters, concert venues were segregated if they allowed black people to come in at all. Um, you know, there were seating sections with ropes going around the chairs, the seats that was set, with signs hanging down that said, seating for white patrons only, colored seating only, things like that. So if you and I, you know, you know, went to go see Frank Sinatra or somebody back in the day, we had to sit in our designated seating section by our color. You know, if we cross sat, we would be arrested because that was the law, right? And people did not break the law. In the 50s, um, that, that, that uh, Jim Crow law was still in place, all right? Um, people did not break the law. But the two phenomenons that happened uh, one was the invention of rock and roll. And when people like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley, and these other black people invented this genre of music, this boogie woogie with a backbeat, um, and white artists popularized it, like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley and the Comets, you know, on and on. Um, when kids heard this new music, White kids and black kids could not sit still. They bounced up out of their chairs, knocked over these ropes and signs, and they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together for the first time in our history. 
And this would cause the cops to come in and pull the plugs out of the wall, literally shut down that concert. That concert was over okay, because race mixing was not allowed. All right. And um, this happened time and time and time again. So white establishments, not just in the South, but also in the North, began banning, banning rock and roll concerts from coming to their town because of this race mixing. And so, um, you know, when we credit uh, people like Martin Luther King and, and all these other great uh, white and black uh, civil rights uh, advocates and, and people who put together boycotts and protests and demonstrations and sit-ins and marches in order to bring white adults and black adults together, these rock and roll people, Chuck, Elvis, Richard, Jerry Lee, Fats, et cetera, they were achieving this with our youth, with white kids and black kids. And, you know, we need to credit them. Rock and roll was, was, was a trailblazer for civil rights as well. You got to tell me how Little Richard was. I love Little Richard. Uh, he, he's the man who put the woo in rock and roll. <laughs> you know, yeah. He seems like he was a wild man. He was a wild thing. And, and he, just as wild off stage as he was on. I mean, he, he was great. I mean, one of a kind. One of a kind. There will never be another Little Richard. So you got there will like never be another Elvis Presley. Yeah, right? Huh? You got to meet Elvis Presley? I did, yeah. How was he? At the time that I met him, he was a little under. Um, he he was, you know, on, on, on some of those medications. Um, yeah. You know, which was you know, really, really tragic for him. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of his biggest, biggest fans. You know, he and Barry were the reasons I got into, into music. And, you know, my, my dream wa was, was, was first to see them. I got to see them and then the dream expanded, you know, now I want to meet them. Well, of course that's a little harder, you know, they're superstars, you know, they have a, a buffer of entourage in, in between you, but I managed to do that. And then I want to play with them. Uh, Elvis died in 77. Uh, I went to his funeral. And uh, I never got to play with wow. him, meet him, but I, I never got to play with him. But I did play with his band a few times after he died in tribute shows and things like that. And of course, nice. I used to play with Chuck Berry. So, what do you think about the Blues Brothers movie? Oh yeah, you know, one of my heroes was in there, Pine Top. Per well, a lot of my heroes were in there, but Pine Top Perkins, uh, one of the fathers of, of boogie woogie and blues piano, he was out there on the street playing with a Johnny Hooker in that in, you know in that scene. Um, yeah, it, it was a it was a good movie, and uh, what what I appreciated about it most of all was that it it reintroduced uh, the youth to the blues, white right. kids and black kids, you know, to to the blues. Uh, sometimes it takes somebody else to do that for us. Like for example, uh, in the fifties, you know, we had Chuck, we had Elvis, we had you know Carl Perkins and Little Richard and so forth. Uh, but then by the end of the 50s, they all were gone. Little Richard had quit playing rock and roll at the time for a short time. He joined the ministry. Uh, Jerry Lee had gotten in trouble for uh, for marrying his 13-year-old cousin. Chuck Berry was in prison. Elvis Presley was in the army. You know, so rock and roll more or less died as we knew it. Uh, but then, uh, you know, and then it was replaced by all the Bobbies. You know, Bobby Venton, Bobby V, Bobby Rydell, you know, all these guys. And uh, it, was, it was more like plastic rock and roll. And the Frankie Avalons, the Ricky Nelson. Mm. You know, these were great musicians, but they weren't th those original rockers. So it took the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to reintroduce uh, America to that music because they loved, you know, the blues and rock and roll. And on their first two albums, you know, they were doing, 
you know, Chuck Berry songs and Carl Perkins songs. And we, and we were learning about that, you know, from them. We learned, a, a lot of white kids learned about the blues from Eric Clapton, you know, and the blues yeah. because he listened to B.B. King and Elmore James, mm -hmm. people like that. So, you know, we, we, you know, we learned it from another country, our own, our own history. Uh, so, you know, that, you know, that was great. And of course, Back to the Future reintroduced it. Um, so did, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Pulp Fiction. They used the Chuck Berry song, yeah. C'est la vie. You, know, you never can tell when John Travolta and Uma Thurman did that dance. There's been a lot of uh, Crossroads uh, reintroduced. Crossroads, yeah, sure, Robert Johnson, uh, man. Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, you know, and that was like dirty blues that it introduced. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. Uh, and, you know, you without those movies, I don't think that a, as many people these days know about those because you can still ask people and they know about Crossroads and stuff. Great. Yeah. It was a, you know, it was a That's Ralph Macchio problem. and stuff, but it, it's a, it's a good movie and it's got good blues and it's got a good soundtrack to it. So, so, so uh, Daryl, let yeah. me ask they, you, they how do you feel about that? Hold on for just a second, Jeff. Go All ahead, Daryl. They, they learned about Wilson Pickett uh, through that movie, The, the uh, Commitments. Because you know they did a um, a version of Mustang Sally. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, you know all all of that music. Go ahead, Jeff, uh, with your question. So I was going to ask you, how do you feel about current rap and hip hop? Like I have a seventeen year old son. Well, he's sixteen. Excuse me, seventeen. All he listened to was rap, hip hop. Um, Dustin is a big fan of rap, hip hop himself. I'm. I grew up in the. Uh, I, I was born in seventy five. I grew up with a bunch of rap hip hop influences. Do you think some of that music now is it, it's got to be crossing over now more than ever? Because um, that's all my son and his buddies listen to is rap and hip hop. Yeah, listen, white, white kids have always, always gravitated towards black music uh, because you know they they want something different. They want something they can call their own. They get tired of hearing what they you know what the parents are playing in their house. Uh, in the 50s, you know, they got tired of hearing, you know, Rosemary Clooney and Patty Page singing, how much is that doggy in the window? You know, they want to hear a lot, bam, boom, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, but here's here's the situation, though. Um, you know, do you know the original definition of the term cover song? I don't. Okay, you know, you know, if you, if if someone has to say, I have a band, you might say, you know, do you play originals? Or you play covers. You know? So you play other people's music, right? Yeah, covers okay. other people's music. But the original definition of the term cover song meant when a white artist did a black artist song. Oh, really? That, that was the original definition. I did not know that. Yeah, and the first uh, cover song, rock and roll cover song, was Shaboom, back in the fifties. Was a doo wop song, and wh what was happening was white kids were gravitating towards this new music. It wasn't new for us, it was new for them because it wasn't being played in their house. And as you as you may recall, back in the day, a lot of white stations would not play black records. Right. And that's that's what made Elvis Presley because Elvis Presley sounded black. You know, Sam Phillips, who uh, who discovered Elvis Presley, you know, he, you know, he, he loved black music and Sun Records, which was, was his uh, studio, his label, uh, he had a lot of black artists in there, a lot of blues artists in there. And um, he had made the uh, the statement, you know, if I can find a white boy with that Negro sound, I can make a million dollars. And that's where Elvis Presley came in. And Elvis Presley recorded that song, a blues song called That's All Right Mama. 
And that song got played over and over and over again on the white station and white because because kids kept calling in, say, play that again, play that again. You know, they hadn't heard that kind of music. And and white parents were going crazy, you know, get that N-word off the radio, all that kind of stuff. And so Dewey Phillips, um, you know, he knew Elvis was white, but the people didn't know it. They thought he was black because he sounded really black. yeah, he sounded black. And you know, if you know everybody knows what Elvis's voice sounds like today. You know, if you heard a song that you know that was that was never released, you would know that's Elvis Presley because you know his voice. But if you'd never heard his voice before, you, you would hear all those black inflections. You think that's a black person. And so, what Dewey Phillips did was uh, he called down to Elvis's house uh, to get him. And his parents said he was at the movie theater with his girlfriend or somebody. And so they went to the movie theater, got Elvis out of the theater, and brought him down to the studio. And Dewey uh, interviewed him live on air. And, and he asked questions subtly, like, Elvis, how old are you? And he said, I'm, I'm 19, sir. And uh, you, you, you can, you know, go on YouTube and find these recordings of these interviews. Uh, Elvis, so, so what high school do you go to, Elvis? I go to, hi- I go to Humes High School, sir. Well, that right there told all the parents that he was white. Because back in, in 1955, you know, schools were segregated. And uh, so Humes High School was a white high school in Memphis. So that calmed them down a little bit until they saw him on TV and he was shaking his hips. He was dancing around like a black guy. (laughs) They they kicked him off of TV. And so, but the demand was so high, they had to bring him back. And this time when they brought him back, they only filmed him from the waist up. Right. So, you know, but he, he opened a lot of doors, you know, for black people by popularizing that, you know, that music. So have you ever recorded at Muscle Shoals? I never have. No. Have but you played in that? You know, there's a documentary about that. that yes, is, great it is unbelievable all the talent that has gone through that place. Yes, indeed, that's, that's uh, Alabama, right? Huh? Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. For being as small as it was, I mean, it just had everybody you can name went through that place. Yes, indeedy, everybody, and um, you know, but Texas has a lot of great blues musicians too: Freddie King, T Bone Walker. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, of course. Yeah. Stevie Creighton, a lot of people came out of Texas. Yeah. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's out of Dallas, actually, uh, uh, Oak Cliff area. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I love that kind of music. I love blues. As he told you, I love hip hop. You know, I grew up listening to that, but I, I listen, you know, I, I like Bobby Womack. I like, uh, I really love like 70s Motown kind of era too. Mm hmm. Um, and th- you know, that's not brought around a lot anymore. It's not played a lot anymore. You gotta, you gotta find that in movies and things like that. Uh, I wish more of it would come around. Um, what is a style of music that you wish you heard more of today? Oh goodness. Um, I like, you know, personally, I mean, I, I play a lot of different styles. I listen to a lot of different styles. Some I don't play, but, um, I would say where my heart and soul lie is in roots, roots rock music. So it'd be, you know, boogie woogie, rockabilly, rock and roll, blues, country. You know, the, okay. the pioneering music of, of America. So were you a fan of like, uh, and, and I don't know if they would fall into that category, like the Stray Cats or Brian yeah, Setzer sure, or. Yes, indeed. 
Yeah. Um, you know, Brian Setzer, I, I think he, you know, there was that swing era that kind of came out in the nineties yeah. where it was like big, bad voodoo, daddy, Brian right. Setzer, stray cats, things Gary like that. Daddies and all those people. Sure. Right. Right. And then it just disappeared as quickly as it came in. It kind of well, just went away in the night. You know, music is secular. You know, it, it goes around cycles and, uh, you know, Brian first started out, you know, again with the stray cats as a trio playing that rockabilly stuff. And then, uh, then he went into the big band swing, did very well, and he he still tours with the big band. Absolutely, swing. he does a Christmas show every exactly, year. Exactly, exactly, and, and it comes through here, you know. And in fact, uh, his piano player is a very good friend of mine. His piano player, you know, used, used to live here. I know Brian as well. Um, and he, you know, Kevin McKendry, uh, he played piano for Delbert McClinton, and mm -hmm. um, and uh, now with uh, Brian Setzer, great, great pianist. Yeah, uh, I I love it, and and the Christmas show is on every year on like PBS, and it's a it's always a great show. And he does a Chuck Berry number in there, Run Run Rudolph. Oh, right, right, run, yeah. Run, so, um, you know, with everything that we've talked about, what is the biggest memory of your life? Because we've kind of run the gamut of your life tonight. What what's the biggest memory of your life? What what do you want people, when you're no longer here, what do you want them to say, not necessarily about you, but what your life was about? Bringing people together. Okay. Uh, seeing people change that people never thought could happen. Um, being, you know, letting people know that they can only put limitations upon themselves, not let people put limitations upon you. You, you know, you you set your goals. When I when I was in school, uh, I, I always did well in class. Always got good grades and things like that. And every year, uh, the last edition of our school newspaper, uh, the student staff goes around. This is high school goes around and asks each senior, "Okay, so you're graduating in two weeks. What are your future plans?" And um, you know. Joe Blow might say, yeah, I'm going to go to a university of Maryland and major in chemistry and be a pharmacist. So when the paper comes out next to his name was, you know, written his future plans. Uh, other people might say, uh, I'm going to take the semester off and, you know, think about it and come back and start with liberal arts or something like that. Someone else might say, I'm not going to go to school. I'm going to work in my father's uh, heating and air conditioning shop. But then if somebody said, you know, when, when they were asked, what are your future plans? And they go, duh, I don't know. Well, Next to that person's name was politely written the word undecided. And back then, undecided was a code word for you're stupid. You know, you've been in, <laughs> you've been in school now for 12 years and you have no clue what you're going to do in two weeks when you graduate. So they came to me and they said, uh, so, Daryl, you graduate in two weeks. You know, what are your future plans? And I said, I'm going to go to Howard University, major in music and play piano for Chuck Berry. And they laughed, wow. and laughed, and laughed, and went on down the hallway laughing. And the next week, when the paper came out, I went to get it. And then, yeah, you open it to the middle section. All the seniors are listed in alphabetical order. I go down to my name. It says undecided. Oh man, was I? <laughs> <laughs> it trust me, it's funny now, but it was not funny then. I was pissed. I was angry. I was, you know, I was humiliated, embarrassed. And people come in, Daryl, you know, you got undecided by your name. What happened? You know, on and on. I mean, I, I wanted to go out and kill somebody, seriously. So uh, I was very upset and very bitter. And I stayed bitter for a long time, long time. 
But don't you think that drove you maybe? Well, yeah, because, you know, if you tell me what not to do, trust me, I'll right. do it. But, right. but, you know, I, I went to school that I went to Howard University that fall. I graduated, you know, uh, four years later. And, and the next year I started playing piano for Chuck Berry. So I did what I said I was going to do. And and then, you know, when I went to my 10-year reunion, everybody knew it. You know, they'd see me on TV or they read about it in the paper. There you go. Or maybe saw me in concert or whatever. But uh, anyway, um, about it took me about five years to drop that bitterness because I was I was upset because people had had tried to put restrictions upon me. And and all of a sudden it popped in my head and I dropped that bitterness overnight. What what, what I didn't realize was this. They were not putting restrictions on me. They you were they were putting restrictions on themselves and then transferring it onto me because they're thinking, wait a minute, I can't play piano for Chuck Berry. So how how can Daryl play piano for Chuck Berry? He sits right next yeah. to me. You know, Chuck Berry doesn't live around here. Um, you know, he, he doesn't know Chuck Berry any better than I do. Why, why would he have that ability and, and I don't? So, you know, they're they're limiting themselves and then transferring it on to me. And um, so how many people's dreams have been quashed by telling them what they can't do? You know, that, that's why, you know, you never tell your kids you're never going to amount to anything. Absolutely. No how deep that will set in them, you know, and um, just, just don't do that. And so, like, you know, when I go out and, uh, and I give lectures to kids, sometimes, you know, they bring me in for career day. I'm a musician. They bring in a cop or a fireman or computer program or whatever. And, and I ask, you know, so what do you want to do? And some little girl says, you know, I want to sing backup for Lady Gaga. And half the class starts laughing. I don't laugh. Because if she can sing, um, there's, you know, there's a possibility that maybe she might get a gig with, with Lady Gaga one day. Lady Gaga uses backup singers, so why can't it be her? You know, the, the way I viewed it was I heard piano on Chuck Berry's records. So I'm thinking, if I can play like that guy, maybe one day I can play for Chuck. So you know what I did? I found out who that guy was. His name was Johnny Johnson. I got Johnny Johnson to teach me how to play like that. And he taught me. I learned that style. And I played with Chuck. Okay? So when when people uh, would ask me back when I was writing my book, you know, so what are you up to? Oh, I think I'm going to write a book on the Klan. I'm going to you know, go to some Klan rallies <laughs> and interview some people. And they're like, oh, that's not going to happen. You I'm know, sure that went too. over. Right. Yeah. I was the one laughing because there they were again trying to put restrictions on me, but you know, but the laugh was on them. Well, and it seems like you've proven everyone wrong pretty much the whole time. I mean, with, with the music, with the clan, with, you know, you, you have had an unbelievable life. Uh, it let's, is, let's hope it's not over, man. Don't, don't say had. Okay. Uh, having. You are having an unbelievable life. I would never put that voodoo on you. Uh, you know, and, and, it has been a complete honor to talk to you um, just with everything that you have done. Jeff, do you have any other questions that you'd like to ask Daryl? I don't think so. Um, I'm actually learned a lot tonight. Um, and uh, I appreciate you coming on and spreading your knowledge because some, some of this stuff for, for some of us people is hard to hear because we want to think that we're, we're beyond it or, or, just because we're, you know, me, the person is not doing it that are someone that looks like me isn't, is doing it or isn't doing it. So it's, it's a wake up call for everyone to, to be ingrained in what's going on in this world today and to be involved and to make a difference and to not let 
like you said, um, it's one thing to let people just stand by and this stuff go on. Be involved, get involved, um, make a difference, and, and be a part of the solution, not the problem. So I've and you very much enjoyed Daryl. Exactly, and you don't have to be on the front lines. You don't have to go to a Klan rally or, or or go march down the street with the BLM or anybody like that. But be aware of what's going on and what can you do, even behind the scenes, that helps. Sure. You know, I mean, you know, listen. You know, you, you see a great movie that you really, really like. You know, it gets all it gets all the Oscars, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's not just the actors that you see acting the part. It's also the directors and the people behind the cameras and the people you know that you don't see, but you see them in the credits at the end of the movie. You know, be one of those people if you don't want to be on the front lines, but do something. Daryl, uh, I want you to promote anything and everything you have out right now. Well, I'm working on my second book. and I haven't titled it yet. The first book was called Clandestine Relationships. The second book will have all the stuff from the first book, plus updates and new stories. Um, there is a documentary out called Accidental Courtesy. I think you guys have seen that. came out in 2016. And I uh, hope people can, you know, will take a chance to, to watch it. You can find it on Amazon Prime or iTunes, Netflix, et cetera. Um, just check out my website, daryldavis.com, D-A-R-O-Y-L, davis.com. You can find my music, my uh my work within race relations, et cetera, you know, drop me an email, say hello. I'm always willing to talk to somebody. Uh, they, you're also on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, find me, you know, I'm, I'm out here and I love making new friends. Yeah, absolutely. Guys. I think that's going to be it for tonight. Uh, Daryl, once again, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been a true pleasure to talk to you, absolutely. talk about your, uh, your life and everything that you've done and, and all the people that you've brought together in your life. So that's going to be it for us tonight, guys. Thank it's you. the dads that drink. That's Daryl. That's Jeffro. I'm DJ. This has been the dads that drink. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. We'll thank see you. you later. Thank you.